Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Bernardo Castrop, who is the, I think, the director of the Essentia Foundation. And he has, he actually is unique because I think he has two PhDs. He's a philosopher as well as a computer scientist. And we talk to him about all of our favorite topics. We talk physics, we talk meaning, we talk evil, we talk society. This is an unbelievably wide-ranging conversation. Um, and it was just really fun. I think we have very different perspectives on the universe, but that's that turns out to be more about our language. And so I think we did circle around some really, really fascinating truths. I feel like I grew a lot and learned a lot in this conversation, so hope you guys will too. Um, so yeah, if you dig it, share yeah. it with somebody, leave a comment, tell us uh, what sort of leads we could pull on. If you really want to get involved, join our Patreon. Uh, that's patreon.com slash demystify sci and you can get involved in like the interpersonal chats and really help us figure out what to do next so we'd appreciate that a huge thank you to everybody who already supports us and an enormous thank you to bernardo castrop who gave us three hours of what must be his very very busy days and so enjoy the conversation we'll see you next week the scientific revolution starts now how do you have a society that after a century, after multiple generations of that, is able to recover? I, I don't know. I have like a very sober perspective on it where I'm like, I don't, I don't think it's coming back. In, in, in my lifetime. Century, Russian, Russia was open, uh, was very European-oriented. Um, it's not long ago. It's three or four generations ago. Um, and the Second World War decimated Europe. And out of those ashes ar ar arose the most vibrant, liberal, and uh, progressive democracies in the world. Mm. So it, 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 things can change pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. and, and when we think of, you know, th this is destroyed now. It will take now multiple generations. Now there are always seeds in the ground uh, that are very robust and then they sprite very quickly once the conditions are right and they spread very quickly as well. So take heart. It's uh, it's not as bad as it looks, I think. <laughs> I, I hope so. I mean, there is, uh, we live in the Pacific Northwest in the United States and there was uh, Mount St. Helens erupted here in the 1980s. And when it erupted, it was a catastrophic event because what happened is that, you know, half of the mountain blew out. You see all these pictures of the terrible destruction. There's just... I've seen it. Yeah, trees blown to bits. They're all laid out for miles around. And everyone who was a natural scientist, who was an ecologist or a biologist, basically had these doom and gloom predictions where it's like, this place is dead for, for generations. And that spring, the 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 pumice plain bloomed because yeah, it's very fertile. <laughs> well, and the, and it's very fertile, yeah. And yeah. there was like all these gophers that had survived the eruption, mm. and so they started digging through to the surface and bringing up lupine seeds. And so the entire <laughs> hills they were they were blanketed in this purple, just super vibrant blanket, and. I don't think that anybody really ever came back and was like, oh, yeah. I guess we were totally I mean, wrong. I feel like the strategy we should be worried about is that in order to transition to a better civilization, oftentimes there has to be this, like, eruption event, right? And I think that's that's the Russia, like, that's the scary thing. It's like, the yeah. people are going to suffer a lot during that transition, which really kind of, 
that's the real tragedy, I think. And Russian, the Russians already went through it 30 years ago. And now here we are again. It will have to happen again. So, boy, what a karma. Uh, they are taking more than their fair share uh, of suffering. But things will change. I mean, uh, you, you mentioned uh, um, the, the Pacific Northwest. Are you guys in Seattle, by the way? We're kind of at the border of California and Oregon. We're, we're in Oregon. Oh, okay. Yeah. Border south. We, we tried to find it's a place a, that was free of uh, the chance of nuclear war. And rain. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough one. You need to go to New Zealand. Yeah, that's true. But uh, look at the forests of Pripyat outside uh, Chernobyl. Mm. They're vibrant, yeah. you know, very wild, uh, very, very dense population of animals and all kinds of things. So... Well, there's you know, a, there, there are, uh, um, how do you say, those birds that emerge from ashes. Uh, Phoenix, things. yeah. Yes. There are phoenixes uh, around, and maybe Russia is one of them. Has yeah. been in the past, will be again. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm just kind of, like, from a personal standpoint, I'm, like, I'm really still worried about the fire that happens, right? I mean, our country here has that, has the coals going for that kind of a fire, too, and it's sad because it feels like you do actually need to kind of burn things down to make something better sometimes, maybe all times. But I, I don't. I hope that people can find a way to do that in the least destructive way possible, like the coolest fire possible. Yeah, and I mean, you, uh, Bernardo, you've been kind of writing about this a little bit, right? Which is this ideological cleavage that happens when people center themselves on a perspective, and then they start to misrepresent the other side, and it starts to escalate. And it seems like the the statement that well people should just be better is is true but unlikely because there's such a powerful drive to yeah. orient ourselves towards something and it's a useful thing right like so I think that the Ukrainians who are under the thumb of the Russians right now it's a terrible terrible thing that's happening to them but at the same time it's allowing them to forge a national identity oh yeah yeah and so. Is there is there much hope that people are actually going to be able to change this tendency, or is this just a fundamental tendency of how people need to be? It has been present throughout history. You're talking about the U.S. The polarization that's happening in the U.S. is nothing new. You know, we only need to talk about the Civil War. It was a very very similar kind of polarization, and geographically, on the same places. Uh, where the polarization seems to be happening today. Social media brought that up. It never went away. It was always there. Uh, the Americans have so far managed to to deal with this kind of things better than the rest of the world. Um, the Civil War was a disaster, but not as much as a disaster as the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 mm. or the, the Danish-German War of the, in the 1860s or the First and Second World War in European soil. So Europe has always been more cataclysmic about this. Mm. So there, there, there is there is hope that the Americans will once again pull through without total annihilation, as the Europeans have forced them themselves more than once. Well, we're we're in an interesting situation, unlike our first civil war, where we don't really have that same divide. That's nice nice and even like there's there's no one side over here on one side of the country and another side i mean there's there's a little bit with the cities and the country and so forth but we don't have the we're not afforded the opportunity to go out to and and fight each other on battlefields like we used to be and so it's almost like we have to come to some sort of diplomatic solution because the alternative is just untenable like people don't have the stomach for it essentially yeah 
yeah, neither side can have everything they want. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Mm. Is this... Uh, is... Just, just remind you guys, because this happened to me once, uh, that the interviewer forgot to start recording and we were talking for almost <laughs> half an hour. So, uh... Uh, I'm proud to say that I, I did remember my, my job <laughs> is to push the record button. And because I, I, I didn't did see any message warning me that, uh, that it's being recorded. Oh, oh, yeah, we don't record on Zoom. We're recording on oh. the desktop. We, we have like a very space-age setup. So we have actually like three cameras. Here, check this out. Is that one on? Yeah. No, it's not. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, so like this one's tricky because it's an older camera, yeah, and so it breaks all the time. Here, let me see. Uh, there we go. That'll come, that'll yeah, stop no, in a second. Yeah. And okay, then cool. there's this one as well. And so we basically like have all three of them set up, and so we have a switcher in front of us, and we also have something that lets us like record and do timestamps and switch the view that you'll see inside of YouTube. So we can go from like your view to our view to cool. to the joint view really easily. It's a very cool space you guys have there. Thanks. Yeah. We've, th thanks to our patrons too for helping us build this place because it's it's really it's really streamlined. We used to have to edit all of these interviews. Like we'd have to go through and like do the screenshots. Like every time that you were talking, we'd go to that camera and then. And uh, it's nice because we can just do it in real time now. So it's pretty much done once once we get off the phone. So it saved us a ton of time. Yeah, technology, man, <laughs> <laughs> saving saving hours. And the and the format of the podcast is very conversational. So like, oftentimes we'll have pre show meetings where we get where where we talk to somebody and we basically lay all of this out. But the the goal is to invite people that are brilliant and talk to them about their work, but also talk to them about the wider world and the way that they see the world. Because I think that that's what people really need and want. And like one thing we do here that I don't see a lot on other shows is we bring people who disagree, like who have totally different takes on reality together. And, and we try to have the most good faith like discussion with them possible and really understand where they're coming from and not really like so much treated as a battle as much as like this quest for just we're like explorers like we're just trying to understand theories of nature and what's going on so yeah our audience is is really excited to have you on the program i, I can tell you that for sure um you've done a lot of you've, you've been participating in a lot of discussions with uh some of our other friends that we've had on the podcast and yeah we're really stoked to, for you to be here so thank you oh my pleasure so is this like is this this we were talking about this polarization thing and and uh, is that just baked into the program of consciousness? Is is this something that you, you see you'll see everywhere on other planets? And is this just how how conscious agents resolve decision making splits? Well, if you listen to Hegel and his philosophy of history, you would think it is because you know that's how. The human psyche, the human mind, or the absolute, uh, as he called it, which is beyond human, um, evolves and learns about itself. You have this dialectic between the synthesis, in other words, you put an idea forward, and then you get the antithesis, which is the counter to that idea. And out of that polarized interaction uh, uh, comes something else, comes a new uh, synthesis. Uh, which again gets another antithesis, and 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 so we go you know, in that merry-go-round. Um, do, what do I think? I think <clears throat> polarization is one of the archetypes of the mind of nature that are most prevalent uh, today. Um, in the eighties, 
things were polarized, but across geographies, like the first and the second world, the Western world against the Russian world uh, in the 90s. And then for, for the next 30 years of globalization, polarization was internalized. So the polarization increased within U.S. borders. It increased within Brazilian borders. If you look at what's happening in Brazil, it's almost like a facsimile of mm. what's happening uh, uh, in the U.S. And they also invaded Congress. You know, the playbook is the same, not because they are just copying it, but that's where that energy wants to go. I think there's a lot of polarization in Europe, within European countries. Uh, it's the phase where we are. It's the quality of this time, so to say. Is it just baked in that like more than two possibilities is just too much for people? I mean, there's something really interesting. Like you hear people constantly begging for more nuance and discussion, but it seems like as consumers of information, we just really want to see like the two extreme opinions and then try to slot ourselves into it however we can. But it's also like that's obviously lending itself to all sorts of conflagration and madness well, I think that, <clears throat> that comes from another well um, understood feature of the human psyche and none of us is immune to it certainly not me uh, which is insecurity um, mm. if you're insecure about your own ideas you need company so you will either seek allies or you will ally yourself to whoever is the closest to you and the combination of that process is that these alliances are made such, uh, to the point where there are only two poles. And within those poles, people reassure one another. They say, well, I cannot be crazy because, you know, all these other people think like me. They may be even more radical than me. So I'm right. And the other guys are wrong. So th that's the first point of unstable, unstable equilibrium when you get two equally strong poles or, or near equally strong poles um, and a third weaker one doesn't form because of insecurity people need the company they need the reassurance of the culture around them that they have a point that they are not crazy mm. it's very difficult to find a human being who truly is prepared to bite the bullet of uh, nuance of reason uh, of a balanced perspective on things because it brings you to a very lonely place. Mm, mm. Oh, that's really interesting and true. But don't I? I have a feeling that even having one other person is enough. Where if you are by yourself, I, I think that that is the time and place where it brings you to this to this terrible lonely void. But I mean, over the course of my life, after we kind of found so Shail and I met uh, the grad school interviews so we were we were both in new york interviewing and it turned out that we worked across the street from each other in san francisco and that was kind of the that was the genesis of a relationship that is now at like 10 years <laughs> but there was there was something that happened when i realized that i found somebody who thought it didn't have the same ideas that i did but who thought the same way that i did and the world became much less of a lonely place. Like when I go out, like we were just, we were, we were hanging out separately for like a week and I realized that I would go out into the world and I'm like, oh man, there's not a person nearby who I can share my ideas with. And so I just seem crazy to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that the number that you, the, the, like the number that you need to not seem crazy and lonely in the void of, 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 of ideas is just 
one. Like one collaborator. But that one could just be like the TV or something too, right? If you're a single individual and you're out there in the world all by yourself, it's like, how do you, like, who do you peg yourself to? Well, this big entity maybe instead like yeah. the super entity of like a political party or something like that there was a there was a study the other day which again forgive me because i did not read the whole article i just read the headline but it was like the reason that people listen to podcasts is because it feels to them like a fundamentally social experience like they're hanging out with a friend and i think that that's what what all media does because what yeah. we do in media is we watch people we 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 consume their stories and we we create our identity as the reaction to those things. Yeah. I think most people are not like you. I think most people <laughs> need more. Um, and what you said about media being fundamentally a way to find company, I think that's totally correct. If you, if you go back to the 80s and 90s, you would find a lot of people arriving home, if they live alone, turning on the TV and not watching. It's just cooking eating dinner or talking to a friend, but the TV is on and the voices are speaking because that gives them a sense of company. And then until very recently in the 21st century, I think that was a very, very widespread phenomenon that you turn on the TV in order to feel that you have company. Um, and it's a completely passive experience. You're not choosing what you're watching. You don't care what you're watching. The TV is just on to give you that sense of company. Now with a, a on-demand, uh, 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 services like Netflix, Prime, HBO, and so on and so forth. Now you have to take the reins and you have to choose what you consume. Mm. And what that, what that shows, I think, is there is a hopeful change in the collective human mind where people seem to be, one, more prepared to be responsible about what they consume. And two, they don't seem to be in that addictive pattern of seeking a replacement for true human company. They don't seem to be as susceptible to that anymore. Now, they are still extraordinarily susceptible, but I'm, I'm speaking relative, relatively. Relative to how, how or to where we were, there seems to be a positive change in direction. Now, whether this will be significant in any way in my or your lifetime, I, I don't know, but we are at a point in history where we we need to highlight the few signs for hope that we see around. Right? I totally agree with that. Do you think, though, that people are... are do you mean that p there's more human interaction because people are engaging with, like, contents online or engaging in discussions with one another about the content? Like, it's not as much of a one-way street as it used to be? Because people are certainly in, in consuming media at at least the same rate that they always were. I think they are taking more active responsibility for what's happening. Now, don't take me wrong, this can have, and is having terrible side effects. Um, uh, let's go back in time. There was a time in the 80s where we would watch the eight o'clock news uh, with those affable figures that we all knew and they were like family members. They were in our living rooms every evening with a very sober voice that we all trusted. And we would take that for the truth. There, there wouldn't be questioning. There wouldn't be a, a, a means of taking responsibility for what you consume. No, you're a completely passive spectator watching what the media is giving you. Go to today, people choose where they get their news from. Now, that can lead to tremendous polarization and tunnel vision, like people who only watch Fox News or people who only watch uh, Rachel... 
forgot her name. MSNBC. Uh, MSNBC. Rachel Maddow. Rachel Maddow. Yeah, yeah. Or Chris Shilitza, whatever the name of that guy on, on CNN. Um, so that leads to tremendous polarization and tunnel vi tunnel vision. That's that's the bad news, and and people now are are able to do that because they find company through social media, something they couldn't do before. So there is now the the companionship aspect possible when you take active responsibility for what you consume that was not possible before the bad news um, is that uh, it leads to a state of civil war in most uh, societies but yeah uh, decided <laughs> you know there there is a there is a silver lining in this people are taking responsibility for what they are consuming and they are being skeptical of what they hear this is a good thing. The problem is the pendulum has oscillated so hard to the other side. It swung so hard to the other the other side that that now they are skeptical even of reason and evidence. You see, b before total passivity. Now you're skeptical of everything. Nothing is true, which is what the Russian media tries to to do with Russians, like abandon reality. Nothing is true. Um, so the pendulum swung too hard, and now we are facing the opposite side of the same coin. People no longer believe facts, data, well-carried-out studies, reason. They're not skeptical of those, too. Now, how do we find a balance? Well, we are far from it yet, but uh, something has happened that was going in a positive direction, but overshot it completely. And it got some people now to the point where they find it incredibly cognitively dissonant that I can take mainstream positions. How come the guy who is fighting the battle against mainstream materialism take any mainstream position, like vaccines are safe and they work and you should take them? People think that it's, it, it's incongruent. There is nothing congruent about it. In both cases, one just follows the evidence trusts uh, people who carry it, carry out some studies you don't trust a single group but when there are many groups completely independent producing the same results yeah you take it seriously it's, it's the same approach and attitude to reason and evidence but people find it incongruent i think people i think people are skeptical of the means of the production of the evidence it's something like that it's like they're concerned that the institutions, the institution that generates evidence across the board, has been captured uh, in by certain industrial interests that obscure our ability to put our faith in their conclusions. Something like that. And there's also the question of putting faith in the conclusions in the first place, right? Where I, I think that there is, mm. and this is this is a this is kind of maybe where we want to go after we address your point about the fact that they don't want to put their faith in the institutions but i'm i'm skeptical of science as being a, a way of figuring out how to live oh no it's not meant for that <laughs> and and by the way there is a there's a lot that is true behind the notion that the institutions are not to be trusted um yeah, i think a blank check of trust should be given to no one no one institution, um, but to not take any institutional work seriously makes it impossible for us to have any compass in life because 
we are at a point where the things we need to know cannot be known merely by personal direct experience. For sure. Um, there have to be large-scale studies, for instance, to figure out, and that's important in my country, uh, what we can expect in terms of sea level rising for the next decades, because we know our country will stop existing in this century. And unless we transform it completely, unless we float it, unless we sort of surround the main cities with you know five meter high seawalls, which is amazing. The Netherlands did it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, you're in the Netherlands. So I thought you were in Brazil. I'm sorry. No, I was. Well, I haven't been in Brazil in decades, okay. but I was born there. I want to grab something. I'll be back in just a second. Keep talking. Yeah. So it's important for us to know, you know, uh, what to expect. And, and, and to know that, you need reliable models that can only be calibrated on the basis of very large-scale government-funded uh, studies. Things are not linear. Like I was giving an interview to a friend of mine, uh, uh, Alex Takiris from Skeptical. I like him a lot, by the way. know him personally. Uh, but um, he, he makes this point that if you look at the data, you don't observe a lot of sea level rise. Uh, uh, for the decades between the 90s up to the 2010s. Um, it, but that's not how things work, you know. Uh, when ice melts, it doesn't increase water level. Ice that is already in water, when it melts, it reduces in volume. Water is peculiar in this sense. And you can prove that yourself by taking a glass of soda, putting ice on it, and watch the ice melt, and you realize that the level of soda doesn't change when the ice melts. So ice melting in the sea doesn't increase sea level. So and, and that's what's happening. The seas are warming. The climate is warming. So ice in the uh, uh, North Pole is melting. Does that increase sea level? No, not at all. So should we just sit uh, feeling safe? No, because when ice on land melts and it's light towards the sea, as it will begin happening in Greenland and Antarctic Antarctica, then sea level rises suddenly. And for us here in the Netherlands, we can lose the places where three quarters of our population uh, live, including all of our history, uh, all of our culture, insofar as it's embedded in books and buildings. And we know so that this, us, this happens over the course of history because you can find submerged ruins. Like there are oh, places where things are built and the waters come and... Yeah, they're but, like finding villages under the English Channel and stuff. Or, yeah, so yeah, like we, we know channels. that this is a thing that happens on the planet, and anybody who's who's willing to go on record to deny that it's possible seems crazy to me, because I'm like, well, they, the, the course of normal events on the planet will lead to this at some point. If, they, they don't deny it's possible. They deny it's happening right now, and even if it is, they deny that it's uh, the hand of humans doing this, that it may be some you know standard solar thing that we can do nothing about anyway. For us in the Netherlands, that's not enough. So, but the point I wanted to make is, if we only trust direct personal experience, then we will trust none of the models that are telling the Dutch people, this is going to happen and we have to prepare. And if we don't trust them and we do nothing, we will lose three quarters of our population and 90% of our history and culture. So, you know, it's not like uh, Miami Beach and, and, and Manhattan are going to flood only. No. It's like uh, more than half our country is going to disappear. <clears throat> it's a big thing. <clears throat> so and we cannot go about this without institutional trust of some form. 
So I like I always wonder about this in terms of messaging and in terms of packaging of the ideas because I'm like okay mm. so if you if you lean on science as being a thing that is I, I just changed it um, if you lean on science as being a thing that you have to uh, trust as being correct about the mechanism then you put yourself in a position where what you're going to do is you're going to have a fight. Because you're like, this is the evidence, this is how we're interpreting the evidence, and based off of this interpretation, this is what we should do. And it's like, okay, then you've set up a condition where somebody who is who doesn't believe that it's the cause of humans can be like, well, that's not us, we don't have to worry about it. Somebody who does believe that it's the cause of humans can be like, you idiot, how could you be so stupid? Of course it's us. But the real question is, hey, we live on a planet where these things can shift and they probably shift relatively quickly because how else could you have a fully submerged village? And we're afraid of it happening at some point. And so we should prepare for posterity because the chance of it happening is non-zero. And so it's like, I almost feel like by changing the messaging to be like, this is the right thing to do on a larger scale would defang the conflict of is it humans or is it not because you're like okay well we don't want it doesn't really matter we don't want to burn stuff for energy anyways like it's just it's we're gonna run out of stuff to burn like it's just it's dirty it's like you don't have to argue about the finer points of like the 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 specific ways in which we're at fault it's like i think that you can make a moral argument of like it could be better it's not only that, even the, the methodology of science itself has skepticism built right into it, structurally. Uh, single papers are never to be trusted. Results have to be replicated by multiple groups under different but mutually compatible circumstances. So there, there is a process of inbuilt skepticism to, over time, increase the reliability of certain results and um, well it's and really good at being skeptical about results but it's not great at being skeptical of the interpretations of results like interpretations get awarded nobel prizes and get concretized and get stuck in the mud and people latch onto interpretations but science can never tell you exactly the interpretation of the results. It can only tell you the results, and then you have to make that leap yourself. It's like that meme of the, like, you have the the letter that that's, like, from, depending on which way you shine the light on it, it either looks like a B or a G. Like, that's the, 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 the data is the weird shape, and the interpretation is the way that you shine the light on it. And it's unavoidable. We know that since Thomas Kuhn in the 1960s, that uh, data is theory laden, that there is no such a thing as absolutely neutral data. Even the efforts for collecting data are already mm. biased by your theoretical prejudices. And yet we've put a man on the moon. We've landed a, a spaceship on, on an asteroid or a comet, whatever that was. We've um, cured diseases that were destroying large percentages of the human population in the past, such as the plague, tuberculosis. Um, we've created the internet and it works. We can talk to each other now uh, across nine hours of uh, time zones. Um, so there is something that does work. Oh, it's, it does. It's called, it's called technology, right? I mean, like technology doesn't require an interpretation. It's like, does the airplane fly when I change its wings like this? This is the, okay, so check it out. Check it out. I think that what you're trying to say in 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 a clear way is that you can have a math you can have a mathematical model 
of how a system works. That's and that, technologically brilliant, right? Like heat transfer was looked at as a fluid that flowed and the mathematics worked out perfectly and they built incredible engines using it, but it's completely wrong, right? We later came up with a different theory of physically what's happening, which is the vibration of the molecules. And there was, you know, <laughs> Luther Burbank designed, I think, something like 500 or either 500 or 800 different cultivars before they knew what DNA was. Like the guy was just making stuff and he had a vision for how it worked and he had an intuition. And so it's like technology doesn't necessarily allow you to, to reach for a more foundational interpretation because technology has a tendency of being built on the mathematics of a system. Like it's basically a confusion between science and technology. Like science can never definitively tell you for sure this is how this thing happened in the past, right? Science always looks at some event that happened or happened a lot in the past, you know, like the the procession of the different planets through or whatever. Like it's looking at some event and trying to explain what happened. But technology is just like, oh, well, we're just going to retune this and, and build something new out of it. And I think that confusion is is kind of devastating on the population. Yes. And, and the problem with that is that we've been trying to make of science something it was never meant to be and mm. structurally cannot be, which is to review the truth. Science is not at all about that. The only people with a fairly naive understanding of what science is, which includes, unfortunately, some very well-known science figures, uh, um, uh, would think that. Science is not at all about unveiling the truth. Science, science is about predicting what's going to happen next, given certain circumstances. That's how we do science. Uh, scientific theories are predictive theories. Mm. And that's how we can carry out experiments, because the theory makes a prediction, so you carry out an experiment and you see how nature behaves. And if the behavior matches the, the prediction, your theory is good enough. Does that mean that your theory is true? Of course not. Mm. Now, we, we put a man on the moon using Newtonian mechanics. Is Newtonian mechanics true? Not at all. There is no such invisible force that attracts planetary uh, bodies at a distance. Uh, now at uh, their the indirect proportion to their masses and indirect proportion to the square of the distance. There is no such force. We know that since Einstein. So what do we think now? Well, we think what, uh, what keeps the planets around the, the orbit of the sun is a curvature of space-time. A curvature of space-time? Show me that curvature. Well, we can't see that. All we can see are the effects. In other words, all we can see is the predicted behavior of nature. We now have loop quantum gravity that's telling us, well, time is not fundamental. And if so, neither is space. And if so, neither is general relativity or special relativity. So science is a series of convenient fictions that give us a way in terms of which to think about the behavior of nature. Those fictions, they change over time. The moment they are no longer con convenient, we choose something else that's more convenient in terms of which to think about nature's behavior. For the 20th century, we thought of the bottom level of nature as constituted of particles, little spatially defined bodies with clear spatial boundaries. 
Is well, they're, they're points, on? really. They don't have boundaries at all. That's what's so weird about there, a particle. There are no particles. It's just there, a, there, I mean, it's a point where some variable is changing. A zero-dimensional point. Yeah. There, there, there are no particles. <clears throat> there are um, patterns of excitation of underlying fields. Can one show me the field? No. So how do we know they are there? Because we know their effects. We well, know how nature behaves. Well, yeah, the, the field is an effect, right? I mean, the field is essentially a mathematical representation of some changing vector quantity, exactly. right? So it's, it's like, I think like saying that you can like construct a building out of something immaterial, like an idea or a field or something is fundamentally confused. I mean, I understand it works out technologically. You can make predictions and stuff, but it doesn't get at the mechanism. It doesn't actually explain to me what the material actors are doing to produce those effects. No, but it, 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 it was never meant to. The field is a, is a theoretical fiction in terms of which we can predict what nature will do next. In other words, what we will see next. And that's enough to develop technology. So what is science about? Science is about allowing us to develop technology. Ah, see, I think you're talking about engineering. I think I disagree. I think that you're confusing science for engineering. Like you're right that that those fundamental pattern recognitions and like setting up the contours and the systems and mathematical re relationships are important for technology. But science is just trying to tell us about how some consummated event went down. It's like how did the Earth come to look like this? It's like you can never say for sure in science with engineering you can definitely say like this equation works or it doesn't right and you can set up these patterns but like at the end of the day the science has to exist as a plurality there has to be a plurality of theories of possibilities for what could have caused the consummated event to have occurred it's like there are a plurality of convenient fictions but no i i don't think science and technology are the same science is about having theories that predict nature's behavior Engineering is about applying those theories in order to make things that uh, that are useful to us. So they are not the same. But is it, how do you predict? Pre can you just hold watch on, nature's hold on, behavior? Hold on, hold on, hold on, like hold that's on, what hold we on. do by experiment. Every hold experiment on. is an observation of nature's <laughs> behavior. Exactly. Yeah. I I would modify the definition of science slightly to say that science is about explanations for phenomena that are consistent with what will happen in the future. So I think that like, I think so the, and the reason that I want to modify it that way mm -hmm. is because I'm like, I don't think that science is purely about the future. I think that science is about explaining the past with an eye and the way that you verify if you're, if that <coughs> your uh, description of the past is correct is whether or not <coughs> it lines up with what you will find in the future as you keep looking. But is describing what? it enough? Is what do you mean? It, like, is a description like a mathematical statement of a pattern, a behavior? A no, no, no. When I say explain, when I did I say describing? You, you did, yeah. Sorry, I mean explain. I, I think mean, you're right. Expli wait, wait, what? I mean, I think you're right that it does try to take a description of phenomena that's been observed in the past in an experiment and then apply it to the future. Like that is the technological method, essentially. No, no. What I'm trying to say is that what science is doing is science is trying to explain how something happened in the past. And by explaining the the how relationship of like what are the pieces that were acting and how did they interact, that's the thing that if it the the way that you check to see if your explanation was correct was whether or not the next time that you look at something, if it holds. That's the predictive power of it. I'm not sure that it's exclusively designed for prediction, though that is the popular mindset. Well, that's the technological Yeah, confusion. that's the technological confusion, I think.
Um, once you have a predictive model that can take you from the present to the future, you can apply it retroactively, of course. So we can pretend that the present is 10 to the minus 34 seconds after the Big Bang, apply our predictions to that point, pretending that it's the present, and predicting the future. But the future becomes the present now, our present. And the theory is correct if it has correctly predicted that this present would arise from that fictitious present uh, to which we applied our predictive models. So yes, you can provide explanations for what has already happened by applying a predictive model to a point in the past, knowing already what the future is, because the future is the present. We can do that, and the scientific method allows for that. Um, with experience in, in science, both uh, cooperate and governmental, governmental science, I can tell you with a very, very high degree of confidence that the vast majority of funding given to science is about predicting the true future and finding solutions for that future through the application of scientific theories uh, in engineering. It's not about accounting for the past. Some governments exactly. still spend money in accounting for the past. That's usually restricted to academia, to some fundamental research, which is which we still keep alive, but even that is reducing. <clears throat> but I think that I, I, I have an intuition that that is a... I hate to use this word, but I think that that's a corruption of the spirit of science. It's at least sort of tragic, right? I mean, like, look, I, I think that the the relationship between mm -hmm. science and the state is one of productivity and of instrumentalization. Application, technology, engineering, all these things. It's like nobody's ever going to care in the state if people come to a material understanding of what the atom is doing to produce electromagnetism or something, right? As long as they have mathematical representations that allow them for, to produce technology with increasing efficiency, they're good to go. Like, those fundamental questions are just not interesting to a productivity-oriented operation. And yet, and yet, the foundations of the sciences are the pla these these fundamental explanations, I think, are the ways that we structure beliefs and meaning and our understanding of the and universe. And maybe even stumble into new technological paradigm shifts. Perhaps, but in like a separate capacity. So like, I think that the, the stories that we tell about the foundations, so it's like quantum field theory being a mathematical theory at its foundation suggests a mathematical holographic universe. And that to me is a... I think that that's a particular belief structure that is similar to the belief structure at the turn of the century where the body began to be looked at upon as a machine, where we live in a time where the greatest technological advancements are machines. And so we look at the body as being a machine and we have all these metaphors for how it is a machine. And so we try to treat it as such. And as time goes on, we start to realize that, like, well, it's not really like a machine because it has this spirit that's inside of it that's actually doing stuff, and so it's, it, the metaphor falls apart. And I think that treating the universe as fundamentally mathematical creates a similar unreality to existence that I, I think is, is... Oh, I'm going to open a can of worms. I think it's very... Uh, I think it's very unsatisfying, and I think that it creates a lot of tech cognitive issues for people because they live in a universe that is not real. Oh, it is real. Whatever it is, it is 
was happening. I sympathize with you, but sometimes you the alternative is just a form of self-deception. Let's look at what we would not be able to account for without quantum field theory. Mm. Let's look at what would remain magical mystery if we thought of the bottom level of nature as true little particles as opposed to ripples on fields, this unreal stuff that you mentioned. We would not be able to account for particle interactions, meaning we would not be able to account for atomic, uh, atomic explosions and, and, and uh, atomic reactors <clears throat> because pure quantum theory doesn't give you a, a way to predict the interactions across different particles. First time we could do that was with quantum electrodynamics, mm. which turned electrons into ripples on a field. And since then, there are 16 other quantum fields that have been proposed. We would not be able to account for quantum fluctuations, which we know happens. We have the Casimir effect tested in a place where I used to work, and, and it happens. Without field theory, uh, uh, particles would be popping in and out of existence uh, uh, magically. We wouldn't be able to account for that. We wouldn't be able to account for reconciling quantum theory with special relativity without the fields. So th sometimes nature forces you in a direction where human intuition doesn't want to go, but you, you, you don't have an option. Okay. Well, so I think that you are absolutely correct about the necessary death of a particulate theory of existence. Like, obviously, there is a resonant connection between things, and the easiest way to do that is by having this quantum field. The question is, when you measure the quantum field, what are you measuring? How do you have a measurement without Oh, something? you don't. All what you do can you measure are the effects of the quantum oh, but field. but that's crazy. The fields are theoretical entities. They are predictive tools. Convenient fictions. But They're fictions that tell you the effects of your experiment, right? They predict the effects of your experiment. They're essentially fields of effects. Well, okay. And yeah. so that's like the, that's the thing where I'm like, so the way that I see this as being, it, it, it is a theoretical genesis uh, that comes from the, the death of the ether in the Michelson-Morley experiment. A bunch of other experiments. And a bunch of other experiments. But there was basically like around the turn of the century, there was this foment of experimentation where they were desperately trying to find the ether and they couldn't find it, right? They're like, there doesn't appear to be ether wind. There's no drag. Shit's weird. I don't know. And in order to deal with that, they basically did away with the ether and they replaced it with this like quantum... Well, with math. With something that could describe what was happening without needing a physical mediator. And even, I, I always refer to the speech, Einstein in the 1920s gave a speech at Leyden. And when he gave that speech, he gave it on the ether. And he described space-time as a non-kinematic ether. So he saw it as an ether theory. And I think that the reason that that's, that's important is that he recognized that there was something that was there that was a physical connection, that was a physical material that for some reason wasn't able to be measured because it didn't have an effect on the measurement tools themselves. Like, I think that that's what he meant by non-kinematic ether. Well, they, they do, and we've measured them now. Time dilation is measured. Well, time dilation is an interpretation of some experiments, right? I mean, that's, that's well, the leap. Put that an you... atomic clock on an airplane. Right. It, it takes longer exactly. to tick than the one on, on, on the ground. Right, but if you've defined time as what the clock is doing, 
then you have to take another step back and be like, okay, this atom that's vibrating that we're using to clock time is under some pressure when it's in a gravitational system and it's beating less. Like there's less vibration of that in that gravitational situation. And so like, yeah, you could say time itself is changing, but the fact of the matter is the equations can't separate out what clocks do from time itself, which is a concept, right? It's an idea. You're correct. You're correct. But this has been so throughout the entire history of science. This is not something new that comes with quantum theory. Let's go back to Newton, that invisible force that acted at a distance instantaneously across celestial bodies. You don't see that force. You can only measure it through its effect. That force is a convenient fiction. So is space-time. Well, uh, so some people have punched theory. through it, actually. I, I think it's worth pointing out that like, the biologists also originally thought of genetics as a, as a sort of like set of effects that was transmitted from generation to generation. And you can imagine a situation where they had genetic fields that were the popular way of describing what was happening, right? And it's like, that could be an accurate way of describing how heredity occurs. But yeah, because I came, it, I, I came up with this thought experiment when I was trying to explain to my brother the utility of, of imagining a physical mediator for stuff that's down there at the bottom. Because I'm like, if they thought that there was a genetic field inside of every cell, would we have CRISPR-Cas? Can you imagine a path between the hereditary field and CRISPR-Cas? And if you yes. can't, okay, what is it? Uh, what we call the genetic system can be imagined as an antenna. If you change the, the antenna, you change the signal that you receive because you will resonate with different frequencies in the, in the band. Um, you will get different resonances. Uh, look, science has always been... Well, hold, on, hold, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm not going to let you get away with that. How does that lead you to a material manipulation of that hereditary field on the basis of molecular cloning, where you get proteins out of bacteria that you then engineer to be able, in a specific physical way, where you, where you, where you engineer the active site of the proteins to match the physical dimensions of the DNA based off of what you want them to do? How do you get there? <laughs> Then you're, this is a, I mean, a whole discussion. I would begin by arguing that there aren't these things that you are manipulating as things in themselves. Okay. What you're manipulating is a representation of, of an, uh, a deeper underlying later, uh, layer of reality. Because your perception is not a transparent window to see the world as it is. It's a dashboard that has been evolved for your survival, not for you to see things as they actually are. This is like Hoffman's, Hoffman's amplitudehedron. Yep. Well, he, he goes much farther than I'm willing to go <laughs> okay. in terms of seeing what's actually behind the dashboard. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm content to say the physical world is a dashboard and all of science is telling us that for the past 45 years uh, or so, my entire lifetime. But uh, even if we don't go that deep, even if we just stick to current uh, intuitions, you can still imagine that morphogenesis is a field effect and the DNA is an antenna receptor in every cell. So it picks up different frequency ranges or different resonant frequencies of that field. And that's how it works. If you change the antenna, you will change what it's receiving. You will change the reson resonant frequencies and you will have a different visible effect 
on how morphogenesis takes place. Morphogenesis is not accounted for today. Hmm. It's not fully accounted for because DNA makes proteins. In other words, DNA makes bricks. But how those bricks are put together in the positions where they are put together remains uh, a mystery in molecular biology. Mm. It's not something that we have a full account for. And we have one Nobel Prize winner in biology on record saying that we are very, very far from it. That the, the further we dig, the more we realize that the hole is much deeper. Goes but much but you, would, you probably wouldn't argue that it's been useless to come up with a material basis for genetics, right? Of course not. Yeah, so it's probably useful to come up with a material basis for oh, quantum <laughs> physics too, right? Like, you know. That's what I've been saying all along. Oh, right on. Convenient fictions. Convenient yeah. is another word for useful. Mm, it mm, helps mm. us to think of nature in terms of a certain convenient fiction, a fiction up to a certain moment. There comes mm, a moment mm. where the evidence is now sophisticated enough that uh, your way of thinking about things is no longer fruitful. Uh, it, it contradicts, contradicted by the evidence. So you need a new convenient fiction. But at all times, we are, doing, we are dealing with fictions. I mean, in the Middle Ages, there was this fiction of the effluvium, which many people today laugh at. And effluvium was an attempt to account for electrostatic attraction. Like uh, uh, if you would rub a rod of amber, it would attract chaff. And, of course, people were discombobulated at the time because it was hundreds of years before Maxwell and the notion of feuds didn't exist. So we didn't have that fiction in terms of which to think about shaft being attracted by an umber uh, rod. So what people proposed was that there is an elastic substance called the fluvium, and it connects shaft to amber. And like an elastic, if you release it, it pulls the shaft towards uh, the, the, the amber. And they called it the fluvium. And we laugh of it today. And yet today we are proposing equivalent things for equivalent reasons to account for the observations of today. People think we, we found the Higgs boson. Uh, yes, we did find the Higgs boson. But people think first that there is a particle called the Higgs. First error. No, what we call a Higgs particle is a fluctuation of the Higgs field. And it is the Higgs field that accounts for inertia. In other words, for the fact that not everything is flying at the speed of light all the time. Second error. People think we measured a Higgs boson. No, it decays way too fast before it interacts with the measurement surface. So what have we measured? We measured what the Higgs decays into. What does it decay into? Well, sometimes two bottom bosons sometimes a W and a Z boson, sometimes two muons, two heavy electrons. It can decay into, an, decay into a number of things. Does the Higgs boson contain two bottom bosons? Or, sorry, bottom quarks. Does the Higgs boson contain a W and Z quark? No. Does it contain two muons? No. So how does it decay into two muons? Well, because there is no Higgs boson. There is a ripple in a field, and that ripple decays into ripples of other sorts, and those are what we measure. So when we say we, we found the Higgs, uh, this is a shorthand, metaphorical shorthand, for a series of abstractions. The Higgs is a convenient fiction. Mm, mm. Oh, that's so which true. may be very useful 50 years from now. <laughs> so uh, one thing that I, I hope that you can explain to me, which I've never really fully understood, is why is there the need for so many different fields? 
Like some well, because, because there's like fif- t- fifteen there's of them. A lot of there different are plants no. too, right? No, no, no. There's a lot well, of different hold on. cells. There are, and... but I, I want to. There are, there are, <laughs> but I want to yeah. understand this. Like, the, what's the what's the conventional explanation for why there's this uh, vast array of fields? The mathematics gets too complicated if we try to merge them all into a hyperdimensional field model. This has been attempted. There are many grand unification field theories that have been proposed. They are all partial. Um, Everybody's got one. Are, huh? It seems like every physicist has their own version of a unified yeah, oh, this, field theory. This, this is an open thing that has been happening for longer than I am alive. Um, and when we did succeed in formulating a theory that does combine it all, it's a vastly overdetermining theory. That's M-theory. There are 10 to the power of 500 possible solutions to M-theory. So it's a pyrrhic victory. Mm. <laughs> you you succeeded in doing precisely nothing. Um, because you simplified so nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, because there's just so many... Because, ver- I mean, like, okay. Well, it's like, so, what's the point of the theory if it just makes things more complicated than the madness that you didn't understand in the first place? Well, exactly. because I think <laughs> that if you have a theory that if you unify everything and it gives you this zoo of possibilities that are the outcomes of solving the equations, I think that what it tells you is... I mean, first, it doesn't, isn't that a measurement of chaos? But the whole point of science is to put order on chaos. I understand, but like I think that that's I think that that's revealing as well. So like one of the one of the side projects that we do is uh, we've been we've been trying to come up with material models for the field equations, where we're like, if the field equations are describing, uh, what if what if they were describing an object? What if they're describing some bodies body, in motion, yeah, yeah. right? Like some sort of material in motion doing something. What would that material? Poss- what possible materials could pull this off, you know? And like one thing that it's really funny, you mentioned the uh, the effluvium. Was it effluv- effluvium? Effluvium. Yeah. Effluvium. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, like it is possible to put a Hookian interpretation on space time and come up with an elastic interpretation of of that process. And it's really funny how like a lot of our ideas often circle back in this really interesting spiral fashion to the ancient ideas. Like you know, atomism was conceived like thousands of years ago. Um, the basic idea of how the planets work is, is you know, is from our basic model for solar system formation was established in like the 1700s, you know. it's And of course, we tried on every possibility and we've tuned it, right? It's it, we, come, we go really far away from it and then kind of circle back to it sometimes in science, you know. Well, it's, we're not going to take the whole, th- it's not exactly the way people thought about it before, but... <laughs> There, there is some wisdom in these initial uh, conceptions sometimes. But to bring it back uh, to this unsolvable equation, like I think that what it's saying is that you, when, when something happens in this network of interconnected atoms, the things are happening at the same time at multiple places, and so you end up getting a complex resonance that's unpredictable. And so for me, it's like when I come up with when when we when we're thinking about these sorts of ex, these material interpretations and somebody somebody puts down an equation that's unsolvable and like i think that at a meta level that's informative in and of itself because i'm like i can't do that math i can't solve that equation i can't come up with the equation but somebody that i trust has and i think that it tells you something about this projected version of reality that i te- deem to be the real world I, I sympathize a lot with what you said. Um, you said two things of what you just said, and you also mentioned 
trying to find a material model for the field equations. I sympathize a lot with that because um, I think there is great danger in getting lost in abstraction. Physics is an empirical science, so we should try to bring it back to empirically very verifiable stuff at all times. And there is a danger of giving up on that and operating in a purely theoretical conceptual realm that is detached from, from concrete verification or refutation. That said, nature is telling us that it's not going to work. I mean, a, a physical alternative for the field equations, people have been trying to do that for a long time. And to this day, the best effort in this direction was made by Louis de Broglie and David Bohm with the, 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 the Bohmian mechanics uh, approach of you know, pilot waves and particles sort of catching a ride on the pilot waves. <clears throat> and it was alive until more or less recently. And in 2018, some experiments were published that sort of you know, put the final nail on the coffin of that. But it was alive for quite a while. The problem is that nature resists this. If you think in terms of pilot waves and real particles in the sense of, you know, spatially bound uh, entities, uh, you cannot reconcile quantum mechanics and special relativity. You cannot explain particle decay. You cannot explain quantum fluctuations. You cannot explain particle interactions. It, uh, there's a number of things that fail. Cannot so, or we just have not. Well, you know, that's, that's the trick. I, also well, I would argue we've... Hold on. I also I, I don't think that this is a particle model of the universe. I don't. It's the not a particle mechanic. No, no, no. The one, the material interpretation that we're working on, the, or that 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 one is seeking that people want. It, it's not about. Or well, that the thing is. is that the word particle. We we agreed earlier, right? That the word particle has been is completely misconceived, right? When I go to my like, I'm teaching uh, an intro astrophysics course at the university right now, and when I tell my when I ask my students what a, they think a particle is, they think it's a building block, right? They're like, they yeah. think that it is a material thing <laughs> that you that a house could be built out of, right? And it well, blows. that's because like that's the word as we know it, right? So like, yeah, that, that's a problem. <laughs> so so we're not like trying to conceive of a particle model. We're trying to conceive of, of a thing that's made out of physical bodies, right? Like actual fibers of some sort that are engaging with one another in a way so as to produce the effects that are described by the mathematical equations that we do trust from empirical uh, examination. They're very reliable, right? I mean, the mathematics of quantum mechanics have stood test after test after test. We, we can assume that these are showing us some pattern of behavior. The question is, what materials are moving so as to produce those effects? And I just like, I think that the greatest tragedy for me in this project is that because I'm not a really strong mathematician, I can't put this into mathematical terms that I can use to explain to somebody what I mean. The best thing that I can do is I can draw something. I can tell you about the ideas that I have. And, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to how to talk about this and what makes sense. But it's like, right now, it's a language of, of two. No. Well, I mean, there's more. There's definitely, there's people that, that are interested and we've put it down in front of a lot of people. Like, we, um, we had lunch with Don Hoffman recently. And we put down a material interpretation of the uh, the three polarizer paradox, and he was surprisingly positive about it. Well, he was like, "Yeah, that makes sense," but <laughs> he's but like, "I don't buy times doomed, <laughs> so it doesn't matter." <laughs> I think uh, I don't know your specific approach. I'm, I'm not going to judge it, but um, in general, I think we are naive to try to find out behind the convenient fictions 
which of them is really, really true. That's not how it works. We, we are monkeys. We have been around for 200,000 years, sporting an intellect for about 30,000, running around a rock, darting in space. And we think we have the cognitive apparatus to pin down what's really, really, really going on. I mean, that's preposterous. Why would we? The best we can do is to, given the limitations of our cognitive apparatus, which has been around for such a short time, uh, to come, at, come up with the best convenient fiction we can in order to have a handle on how to think about the predictions we make. And, and even the notion that the world we see or measure is the actual world is extraordinarily naive. Um, that's not what's happening. The world of perception, including the perception of the outputs of instruments or the clicks of instruments, is a representation. It's our internal cognitive representation of the real world out there. Perception is not a transparent window to see the world as it is. It's a dashboard of dials that give us a representation of the world. And we have to take it seriously like the pilot takes the dashboard seriously. If you don't, you crash the airplane. If we don't, we run under a train. Uh, so we have to take the dashboard seriously. But to think that the real world is this stuff we see around, it's like a pilot saying, my dashboard is the sky outside. It, it's not only a representation of the sky outside, it is the sky outside. And we make the exact same mistake when we say the world as it is, is physical. It is describable by centimeters, hertz, coulombs, joules, or whatever physical quantity we have. These are descriptions of the dials, descriptions of the dashboard and, and the parameters of the dashboard. And they are extremely useful because they predict what the dashboard will show next, which indirectly is tied up with what the real world will do next. But to mistake the dashboard for the world leads to all kinds of problems, including the the futile hope, in my view, that science is about getting rid of the convenient fictions and finding which one is not a fiction. It, it's not going to happen that way. Uh, if we can predict accurately what's going to happen next and may, maybe apply the same model to the past in order to figure out how we've come to be where we are, that's as good as it gets. Monkeys are not going to see the truth as it is. But the material representation seems to be the best way that we've achieved our understanding of the physical universe in the past, right? Like, it's certainly important to us to have a material representation of this table so that I can manipulate the objects on it and so forth, right? Yeah, like, if you have a dial as a pilot that's not quite right... It happens. It happens, right? And the planes tend to crash when the dial lies. And so I think that the question is, and I, there are two questions here, and I think that you're totally right that getting at the underlying reality? It's a long-term project. It's a long-term project, right? <laughs> it's a Promethean project. <laughs> you got to steal the fire from the gods to do that. It's not yeah, going to happen. exactly. <laughs> but, but we do inch toward... Do you agree that we inch towards it? Like, do you agree with that? I'm we're, not even making that claim. I'm just... I'm ju okay. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. I, I'm just curious. Like, we, we do have to... We, we are interested in progress, right? Like, we do want to understand things better tomorrow than we do today. And actually, it seems like that's what's happening. Do you, do you think so? Like, do you agree? Inching up, do you believe in progress? <laughs> yes, but I would define progress uh, in relative, not absolute terms. We are inching away from our mistakes, our previous mistakes. Mm. That we do. 
And we are morally obliged to do that, to stick to mistakes that are already known to be mistakes is just morally reprehensible. Mm -hmm. And we do a lot of it. So yes, we can make progress in the sense of inching away from past mistakes and making new ones. And now whether we are inching away closer to the absolute truth, nobody can know. It's just a matter of whether those uh, new conceptions are more useful or not, right? And, and I guess like what I would argue is that coming up with some material basis for atomic physics that actually explains what we're measuring when we say we have these fields, that is inherently a useful way to conceive of physical reality. It's something that everybody can participate in. It doesn't require mathematics. It's an understanding that's easily transmitted. Like, I believe that, like, say some aliens were to show up on Earth today, they're, they're almost certainly going to have a conception of physical existence that isn't limited to, to some schematization, right? I think they will look at this as somewhat primitive. But, at, you know, that's... <laughs> regardless of other aliens. If the UAP phenomenon, as acknowledged now recently by a number of authorities, if that thing shows anything, it's that whatever agency is behind the phenomenon certainly does not see reality as we do. Mm, exactly. Yeah. What do you it's make of that, by the way? Terms. Yeah, can you elaborate well, what do you, on that? What do you make on, about all of this? Like, do you take it at face value or is it just like some defense department uh party going on in the sky or what do you what do you make of I, all that? I think there's a lot of everything i think 95 percent is just bullshit it's just people lying or <laughs> stupid people who don't know what they saw and fantasize or want to sell books 95 percent is that then there is a real psychological phenomenon that are not personal and you can think of the alien abduction phenomenon which i do take seriously uh, there are a lot of people that uh, have become the subjects for jokes, but which I think reveal, ha have the behavior that betrays the characteristics of honesty to a point of almost naivete. Mm. Like um, the guy who wrote Communion, Whitley Strieber. Um, um, and then there is physical stuff that does not seem amenable to any explanation that fits within the confines of our understanding of physics and logic. Um, and what that tiny percentage reveals, it's a tiny percentage, percentage that uh, is all but confirmed now. It, it's really there. So it doesn't matter whether it's 0.01% or 50%, it's there. You know, you need only one black swan to prove that black swans exist. And that stuff is there. Are you talking about shows, like the, the Tic Tac things that are flying off at crazy instance, angles and stuff? For instance, uh, there, there, there's, there's a long history of stuff that you can rely on uh, as, you know, witnesses that are probably telling the truth and you know, uh, correlations with physical measurements like radar data film there is stuff captured on film in norway that you go like okay make sense of that now <laughs> um and i think what that shows us is that nature has more degrees of freedom than now our current ways of thinking about nature allow for and whatever agency is behind that phenomenon has figured this out or maybe never got caught in the limitations that we got caught in limitations such as linear time moving at constant speed in one direction three dimensions of space inertia it's a big one big one it's it's a big one that is completely uh, refuted by 
this tiny segment of the UAP phenomenon that inertia is fundamental and is always there. Well, apparently... Unless these not. examples are just <laughs> deceiving us, right? Like, there was this little buried article in Forbes around the time the TikToks were coming out, which was some bulletin about this new defense... Uh, some defense contractor who was developing this uh, deception tool that was a satellite-based hologram that had heat signatures. And so I was like, oh my God, like, actually it was my dad who found it. And I was like, wow, this is incredible. I mean, this could absolutely explain a lot of these UAPs that are doing non-physical inertial moves, right? If it's just a projection, then it's like, oh, of course, like, you know, you can you can also move a laser pointer across the moon faster than the speed of light too. Like these things can happen, right? Because they're, they're not actual objects moving; they're just projections. It's just a deception. I'm not saying that's what's happening, but you know, it is. It is certainly maybe keeps us maybe. inside of the realm of physics. <laughs> I mean, I think that maybe it keeps us maybe. inside the realm of physics. Maybe, yeah. But it's like also you can imagine there be you. You have to imagine that the technological project ends in technology that seems like magic, right? Because that's the arc that technology has always taken. You give somebody from the 1600s an iPhone and you'll, you'll blow their minds, right? Like you're like, okay, you can, you can call Og from, you know, <laughs> from Norway and it'll blow their minds. They'll, they won't believe it. They'll, they'll smash it because it's a demonic piece of work. And so... I think that the human tendency is to look at technology and be like, we can keep pushing the edge of this. And I think that that's why I'm so preoccupied with this idea that, okay, if if I, if I really do believe that genetic editing technology is dependent upon a robust physical model of DNA, which Michael Levin's work seems to be showing that perhaps that's not the case because he can do the two-headed flatworms, but I'm like, that seems, that fits, that's a different category of manipulation to me because until he can show that he can change the behavior of the, like, body plan versus behavior, because they behave the same, they're two-headed, and he's like, they don't act any different. And so for me, I'm like, that's, that for some reason, that's a different structural thing, and it's very spooky and weird and morphogenesis. It's planaria, you said. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because planaria, you can teach them to navigate a, a maze, huh. then you can cut off their heads, a new head grows, and lo and behold, they still know how to navigate the maze. So, oh, make sense of that. <laughs> that's something that we were actually talking about just before we started recording this conversation. Do you remember what you were saying about the nature of the mind being in the body? Uh, I, I thought we were talking about the Civil War. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, we were talking about the Civil War, but we were also talking about the fact that, like, the... the that consciousness doesn't live in the mind. You were like, if you were to take out the, like, you were talking oh, about we were just reflexes. like, we had just read one of your blog articles uh, where you were talking about the absurdity of treating the, the mind as a computer. And you had compared the architecture of transistor circuits to uh, water pipes. Yeah, and, sanitation uh, systems. Yeah, which I thought was <laughs> really, really clever. Um, but what what were you saying about that? You we were you you were saying that you were like the mind doesn't seem like it lives just inside of the mind. It oh, seems inside like of the brain. Yeah. Inside of the brain, it lives inside of the body, and so planaria where you can cut off their heads and they regrow with this knowledge seems to imply that m m memory is embodied in a, in, a, in a is embodied. I think we interpret the daily ev evidence of observation like the obvious correlation between our mental states and our physical state, 
uh, we interpret it in a perhaps natural but an extremely wrong way. I don't think the mind is in the body at all. It's wrong to look for the mind and the networks of neurons inside my nervous system. I think the way to think about it is the body is a representation of mental states. In other words, it's what mental states look like when observed by other mental states. Technically speaking, when observed from across a dissociative boundary. So our body, our brain, it's what our mental inner life looks like when represented on a dashboard. The thing in itself, the noumenon, the will of Schopenhauer, uh, it's dissociated mental inner life that we call our lives, our experiences. And when another dissociated complex of the mind of nature represents an external dissociative process on its dashboard, we get a body. And we can represent ourselves on our own dashboard by looking in the mirror. So to me, the body is a dashboard representation of mental processes, dissociative, private mental processes. And the more you dig into the brain, the deeper you dig into that representation. And guess what? If you cut the wrong place in the brain, mental inner life changes. Of course it does. Because the cutting into the brain is itself a representation of a mental process interfering with another. And that interference between one mental process and another has mental effects. Of course, of course it has. Your emotions have effects on your thoughts and the other way around. The, the, the surgeon's scalpel digging into your head is itself not the thing. It's a representation of an interaction of mental processes that have perhaps severe mental effects. So in, in a way, the body is in the mind, not the mind in the body. Because the body is a mental representation of a mind, sometimes even of itself, if you're looking in the mirror. But you believe that the physical material body exists, right? As a representation. But it doesn't exist. All physicalities. It doesn't objectively exist then? Or? The representation can only exist when represented. But the thing that is represented does not depend on your representation. In other words, um, let's take the moon. Is the moon there when we are not looking? Well, somebody's always if, looking at it. <laughs> well, pretend that no living being for at least a moment is looking at the moon. Not one living being. Is it, no are, are the tides still being affected by it? Uh, no, but one step at a time. First, just the moon. <laughs> well, I mean, no, no, it, it, but, just, but, it, it literally just comes down to how you define existence. Well, it's a well, definition. Well, hold on. So. Even if nobody's looking at it, the oceans are still yes, being affected by it. The chain of causalities. I understand your point. I'll, I'll get to that. But okay. be, bear with me for, for, for the sake of argument. Okay. Let's just think of that silver disk in the night sky. If no living being is looking up at the night sky and representing the moon, does the silver disc exist? Have they I ever looked at the night sky? Huh? Have they? So, like, I think that there's a difference here because I mean, there's stars we can't see, right? It's like, do they exist or not? Hold on, hold on, hold on. It, that's true. I agree. But I'm saying that, like, what is the what is the starting condition? Have they ever looked at the night sky and seen the silver disc, and then they look away, or have they never looked into the night sky and seen? Let's the silver pretend disc? they have seen and they are not looking at it right now. Oh, then it still exists, yeah. Okay, so th that's the point I want to make. If nobody is looking at the moon, no living being, 
then the silvery disc does not exist because it is a cognitive representation. And if nobody's looking, that rep representation is not there. But the thing that is represented as a silvery disc within cognition, that thing is there regardless of anybody's looking at it. And the tides are still happening because the thing that causes the tide is not the representation. It is the thing represented. But if we, were, if we were to become directly acquainted with the thing represented, uh, bypassing representation, we would not know it as a silvery disk in the night sky. We would know it as something completely incommensurable with the silvery disk. But that incommensurable thing is what becomes represented in the cognition of living beings as a silvery disk in the night sky. You see I got I mean? you. I got you. Yeah. yeah. So you're just like saying there's too there's too much information for us to to acknowledge all of the information at all times. It's like we have to make these simplistic representations. No, it's. I think it is impossible to acknowledge that there is an objective world that does not depend on our representations. Some physicists are trying to get away from it because they think it's the only way to account for experimental results. I don't think it is, uh, and the reason is the world holds its states and the dynamics of its states continue to play out even when nobody's looking at it we take a snapshot snapshot now we stop looking we take a snapshot an hour from now and lo and behold there has been a consequential evolution of the causal chains that seem to be holding the state of the world even when nobody's looking so i think that's an un unavoidable uh, 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 inference that we can make. There is an objective world that does not depend on us or, or any form of life. But the physical world with colors, with frequencies and amplitudes, all this stuff we use to describe the physical world. The empirics, That yeah. is an artifact of representation. Uh, uh, um, if you are doing an, an entanglement experiment and you're measuring uh, uh, the direction of angular, the axis of angular momentum of a photon, that angular momentum only exists when you make the measurement because angular momentum is a description of a representation. Prior to making the measurement, by definition, you haven't represented anything. You didn't look, you didn't measure. Mm. But the thing that is represented as a spinning photon, that thing was there, whether you measured or not. It's just not physical because physicality is what emerges out of measurement. That would be my point. Interesting. Yeah, I would just, I would, I just would define physical. This just gets into a crazy confusion about what existence is and what physic, what it means to be physical. Um, and it sounds like you're saying that you're defining physicality by the ability to touch something, or it's the in, the empirical side of things. Well, right? it's almost like perception, right? It's perception. Whereas, I'm, like, I'm physical. Right. right, right. Physica so physical. So if to shorten it, physicality is that which can be perceived. Exactly. I and physics is a description of that which can be perceived, even if what is perceived is the output of instrumentation. Yeah, it's interesting. I just feel like that's where things went off the rails with physics. Like physics used to be about the dynamics of bodies in motion, and then they kind of just threw in the towel on that project at some point. I think that well, they just... I, I sympathize with your point, but the, the evidence is discombobulating. It, it is. forces it is. us in the direction of fields. Well, and fields will force us in the direction of something else, you know, eventually, uh, which is commensurate and integrates the fields into something. 
I just uh, yeah, like I I, I don't knock see on wood a, for that. Yeah, 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 I do, I do. Yeah, it's a huge, it's a huge part of of my life and and what I, I mean. But so my my background, my PhD is in material science. So I literally cannot look at something that's vibrating without seeing it as an elastic operation. Like it, the mathematics are completely identical, you know. And so um, I do think that that physics will make a rebound. Um, but I, I think what you're saying is really interesting, is particularly with respect to this idea of distributed consciousness. If if the idea is that reality is actually, and I, and I agree with you, that reality is not just this physical uh, material thing, right? There's so much going on that's immaterial. There's so much we depend on one another, right? We feel crazy if people don't agree with us, right? That's why we funnel into these silos and everything, because we need more than one perspective on the world to make a, a reality, to make a reality, really. Like reality comes from without as well as within. It's not just something that you can have by yourself. You need that. You need other people. You need the other organisms. And uh, I, th I think that this is almost a, 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 like a, a definitions moment because I think that in order to translate it into Bernardo's view, it would be that physicality depends on perception. Right, from an that, empirical standpoint. If you define physicality empirically, yeah. Well, like using using the language of 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 Dr. Kastrup, it's like if, if physicality is the the definition of what is occurring in three dimensions of space and one dimension of time, then you have to have multiple vantage points in order to be able to accurately determine what is happening there. Mm -hmm. Is that right? You're asking me? <laughs> Would you agree with that assessment of your perspective? Yes, yes. It's a fundamental thing in physics that uh, things should be, remain mutually consistent when observed from different points of view. Okay, and so what you're saying... I guess, I, I don't know, I, I just it's an interesting uh, moment in physics for me and for the world. Um, you know, I've heard it described that this relativistic description of things, like from multiple vantage points, of course it's accurate and it gives us a, a picture of what's happening, but it also can mislead us terribly. Like, there's this wonderful philosophy paper by this Greek philosopher who I can't remember his name ever, and I couldn't pronounce it even if I could remember it, but, uh, um, and I'll try to remember to put it in the description. But he basically says, look, relativity is kind of like going to a magic show where there's a woman being sawed in half on stage. And what relativity does is it describes the, the event from all perspectives. But what it could never actually tell you is that the woman inside the box lifted her legs up and the box was cut in half and she was not cut in half. And therefore, it wasn't really magic. You just aren't able to see those hidden pieces of the structure and so this is the this is a totally accurate way you're right that's exactly what it looked like it looked like a woman got cut and hit stay, cut in half on stage but in reality there's something much more mundane occurring at the heart of matters which we can't see and and this relativistic description is never going to be able to accomplish that for us you know what seems or does not seem intuitive or magical or concrete it's not really a function of nature. It's a function of our expectations mm. and our ability to comprehend. Uh, today, we, we don't blink at the fact that electromagnetic waves convey information across a perfect vacuum. How the hell? If electromagnetic waves are waves, 
and it goes across a perfect vacuum, what is it that is waving, right? Well, guess what? It's one of the quantum fields. Um, but what is the field? Well, it's, it's a kind of nothing. It's a kind of nothing that can get excited. And once it's excited, only then it is a thing. Otherwise, it's a no thing, a nothing. Um, today, we are perfectly okay with that. I mean, you guys are, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe a bunch of people are not, yeah. uh, but uh, we, we have an intellectual handle on this. Um, but if you would tell somebody from before Maxwell, I can convey, I can transmit information through a perfect vacuum, that would be completely count counterintuitive, that would be magical. So, you know, it, it's a, a bit self-referential to say that we should avoid complete magic. I would make one exception for that, though, uh, and that is an appeal to clearly prejudiced magic, um, such as uh, in superdeterminism, in which uh, the effort is to, do, is to say, well, the correlation between measurements of different en uh, entangled systems, which is proven, um, is not because of some non-locality or some thing that is not intuitive to our materialistic prejudices, but because of unknown variables that we haven't identified yet and, and which make sure that there is a causal chain that somehow exceeds the limitations of the light cone and we can still recover our intuitions. Now, this is an example of experiment, data, fact, leading us in one direction and a physicist who just does not want to follow the lead of nature, simply wants to preserve his or her own theoretical prejudices, mm. and then tries to project onto nature things that we have absolutely no empirical evidence for, and not even a proper theoretical articulation of that would allow us to make some, ex some real experiment to verify or refute. Mm. That is a projection of prejudice on nature. So th there I am with you. We should not buy into magic when it's clear that the motivation for the proposed magic is to preserve prejudices. And people but, love magic. They love magic, right? Okay. I mean, look at the headlines in the pop side, right? People, people. I mean, I think this is understandable too. It's a, it's a bit of a humanitarian crisis because the rationalistic, uh, the enlightenment, let's say, really kind of killed supernaturalism for us. And I don't know that humans are capable of getting it out of their their fibers of their being, right? We, we Which is actually why I really like this dashboard theory, because I'm like, yo, the magic is beyond the dashboard. The magic is the sky. Like, we've got the instruments. Let's put the magic in the sky, and we can live there, and it can be spooky and weird, and it could be uncontemplatable, and that's okay, but like, let's border it to say that we need to make sure our instrumentation panel is as useful and as 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 powerful as it can be. Well, personally, I don't want the magic even there. Interesting. <laughs> uh, um, I, I'm, in that sense, I am prejudiced. I'm prejudiced towards Aristotelian logic. I wrote a book basically trying to say it's a very limited perspective. There is much more going on. <laughs> that was my third book. But I am still attached to it. And the reason I'm attached to it is not a clear, pure scientific reason. It's more of a social reason, a psychological reason, which is even those who recognize that the core of nature may not follow Aristotelian logic at all, because you, know, we, you cannot use logic 
to justify the validity of logic without incurring into uh, circular reasoning or begging the question. So logic is on very flimsy grounds. We've known this in our philosophy for quite a while now, since the 20th century. Uh, but if based on this nuanced and, and rigorous rationale, we open the doors to everything that is not logical, then we open the doors to all kinds of nonsense and mm. bullshit. So there is a social psychological reason to still stick to something that we know is an artificial limitation until we figure out a way to sort nonsense from potentialities that are illogical. Mm. Until we get there, uh, you will not hear me opening a door to magic. Well, no, think don't you think the problem is that logic logic can't solve problems for us? Like, Logic is a great way of processing a series of assumptions, but the assumptions themselves are, are where the, all the meat of everything is at because you can process the most idiotic assumptions logically as heck. Like you can do absolutely amazing quantitative logic on bad ideas and, and come up with bad explanations as well. Yeah. Look, the flying spaghetti monster is a very logical hypothesis. It accounts for the data. <laughs> You could have a noodly monster operating in an invisible hyperdimension moving the planets around their orbits. And lo and behold, the planets do move around their orbits. So it's a perfectly logical mm -hmm. thing to do. So my point is not that we should follow logic to arrive at conclusions. I think empiricism is the key. And we should also use some rational principles like the principle of parsimony, which are not logical in the sense that they aren't deductive. Uh, but which provide uh, empirical or, or reasonable guidelines that we should uh, observe. My point is that even if you are not just pursuing logic, you're pursuing an empirical observation of nature and you're trying to model that, we still produce our models in such a way that the models fit with our logic. In other words, the models are not internally contradictory. And that is something we need to do for psychosocial reasons, not for rigorous reasons because we have plenty of reasons to understand that logic is arbitrary for instance and and, and and logic is deeper for us than physical intuition we are amenable to abandoning our physical understanding in the name of new physical theories if the evidence requires but we are not amenable to giving up the notion that everything is either true or false and not neither and not both Yet, what I just described is the law of excluded middle, one of the five uh, uh, postulates of Aristotelian logic. And there is a lot of reason to abandon it. A lot of reason to abandon it. One Dutch philosopher, uh, in, in fact, proposed a philosophy that does not have the principle of exclude, excluded middle. It's called intuitionistic uh, logic. And, and the reason is the following, if you, if you care to, to try to understand it. If everything is either true or false all the time, and it's always one of the two and never both and never neither, then you can prove that something is true by proving that it cannot be false. And this leads to all kinds of aberrations, like proving that there is a number that does this or that without having a clue what that number is without ever producing an example. That there is a pattern of nature that does this or that without having ever observed that pattern or even being able to articulate what the pattern is. In other words, producing an example. 
and this 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 forces us to take as absolute reality what that which is pure abstraction and if you abandon the law of excluded middle then you can only prove that certain things exist by showing an example that's why it's intuitionistic you, you have to construct that it's a form of constructivism so these these are deep discussions does that does that, that attack the falsifiability principle of a sound scientific theory no no you can still you can still uh, falsify but if you things. can't just because you can't falsify something doesn't necessarily mean that it's true right no it's different even if you can prove that the thing cannot be false it doesn't mean that it is true in other words, false. even if you can show that there is no possible space for it to be false, it doesn't mean that it has to be true. You're, uh, it's subtle. Uh, can, it's, you give, can you give an example of a case where this could be applied? Because I, I think I understand what you're saying, but I'm having a hard time coming up with a use case. Um, what's that mathematical conjecture that we didn't manage to prove yet? Uh, well, suppose that there is a mathematical equation and you don't know whether there is a number that uh, 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 fulfills the equation. You don't know that. So the equation may be true or it may be false. Mm. Uh, some Riemannian hypothesis. And you don't know whether that hypothesis is true because you, you don't know whether there is a number that makes it false. Mm. You don't know. We can prove hypotheses like this by showing that the hypothesis cannot be false cannot be false like therefore it is true cannot. you can logically process it so as to show that it's provable that there must be a solution to it even though we haven't yes. found one yet okay exactly so we we have done this a few times we have proven that an equation is true even though we we don't have a solution for it and we've we've done that by showing that it cannot be false Okay. Under intuitionistic logic, that wouldn't be a valid proof of existence or of truth. You would have to show a solution. So you'd have to show an example. It's basically requesting uh, a, a, a level of evidentiary support for a true conclusion. This reminds me of Bitcoin mining. <laughs> You're like, oh, there is a solution to this, and the computers are just cranking away at it until they unlock it, you know? Yeah, except you would have to modify that so it's like the computers haven't yet... F it, it's, a, it's an equation to which the computers can crank and crank and crank and can't find a solution. And yet everybody has the belief that there is a solution, but until they actually find the solution, there is the sense that maybe they won't. And so you're unwilling to say that it's true because it hasn't met the, the standard for what is true. Is that it, it's just an illustration of what happens when we abandon some of the axioms of Aristotelian logic. Um, abandoning some of them has very, very palpable consequences. Uh, and, and why is it important to show this? Because we know that logical axioms are arbitrary. They reflect the way the monkey mind thinks. They reflect how our cognition works. But we cannot logically argue for the validity of logic without running into self-reference and circular reasoning, begging the question. Interesting. And, and we know that. We know, we have known for a long time, that logic itself is on very, very shaky ground. 
Now, we, we have all of these thought experiments to illustrate that, like uh, Agrippa's trilemma and then this stuff and the Munchausen trilemma. Um, and yet, despite knowing that, we are so married to logic because it reflects what we are. It reflects, it reflects our cognition um, that we don't take seriously what we already know, that logic is on shaky ground. Can you, where does this play out? And do you see this playing out in, in society right now? Not right now. Oh, right now. Okay. I see. No, this what is probably a 22nd century thing. Oh, yeah, okay. So what is what is the trilemma? I haven't heard of either of this. You you mentioned Munchausen's um, trilemma. Is it, can you... Is Agrippa's it, trilemma. Agrippa's <laughs> I think it's better if you look it up. Okay. Otherwise, we spend uh, quite some time. You can also look it up under the name the Munchausen trilemma basically what it shows is that you cannot use logic to prove the validity of logic mm. in other words logic is not logical mm. you you shoot yourself in the foot the moment you try to argue for the validity of your logic okay it's basically saying that you can't prove anything without a starting assumption and the process of logic can't prove the starting assumption because you have to have the starting assumption in order to prove something and it you is forever downwards and downwards and downwards and there's never a fundamental axiom because each proof requires a new axiom. Exactly. Mm. Okay. That makes, total uh, sense. That, that makes total sense. So how do you how do you see this playing out in the 22nd century? If I say that in the 21st century, I will open the door to the door to things that I don't <laughs> want to open the door for. Okay. It, it requires a, a certain finesse of thought that uh, is not amenable to communication at this point. I will be misunderstood. I tried to do it the only way I could, which is in the form of a book, because in the book I can sort of fence it, uh, fence around it in a way that the discussion doesn't go in a direction that they cannot control. Mm. And, and it's a suggestive book. It's not an analytic book. It's called Meaning in Absurdity. And, uh, and it, it's a, a book that sold very little for precisely the reason that I, I in interviews, I don't talk about it. Mm. Because otherwise, I just open the door to things that I don't want to open the door for, all kinds of foolishness. I don't want people to start saying, I don't need to be logical, so I will take seriously hypotheses that are completely nonsensical. And then, by the way, Bernardo Kastrup tells me that that's okay. So you go talk to him. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> know what I mean? For I, me, it just reorients us towards examining our underlying assumptions and the axioms that we apply to them and being like at every juncture, what, like, just raising awareness of the fact that we do have assumptions underpinning all of our logical processes and we do have axioms and we should be aware of them that's that's half the battle and there's such a thing as a good assumption like i have literally heard people make logical proofs of eugenics as being the right thing to do and <laughs> or I'm, any number of atrocities right and so and but it's always the case where you listen to the argument and the argument is flawless until you look at the assumptions where you're like, that's a crazy, that's either a crazy assumption or that's a bad assumption or that is an incorrect assumption. Like, yeah, but uh, that, that you can refute without the thoughts I'm, I'm sharing now because th there are two types of assumptions the assumptions that make logic what it is and the assumptions of what you are investigating in a logical way, such as the assumptions behind the theory of eugenics. So to invalidate those assumptions does not require you uh, to depart from Aristotelian logic. Mm. 
because those assumptions are not the assumptions that underlie Aristotelian logic. Mm. So to have clear terminology for this, let's call the assumptions that underlie a certain logic its axioms, which is the technical name for them. Uh, you can uh, reject assumptions without rejecting the axioms of logic. Mm. In other words, you can reject uh, eugenics in a purely logical way. And sometimes you have logic fighting against logic, and the winner is the logic that looks deeper. None of that does away with the validity of logic. You just applied the logic more broadly, mm. deeply, and you started investigating the very assumptions in your opponent's arguments. But those assumptions are not the axioms of logic. What I'm saying is that ultimately, even the axioms of logic are on very shaky ground. And that to understand what that does and how to go about it without opening the door to a tsunami of nonsense is extremely delicate. It requires a certain intellectual honesty and nuance that is very hard to get a grip up, a grip on in, in an interview or in social media. If I were back in ancient Greece and I were Plato at the academy, I would talk to people about it. Um, but it's a very, very, very difficult, delicate thing to talk about. If, if I can give you just a taste of it. Is that because it's so it, cataclysmic? It, it, like, it's just, it's not part of the optimism that you want to put out no, into the world? No, no. It, okay. it requires a certain intellectual maturity, even an emotional maturity. That uh, I'm upset that we haven't proved age. ourselves to yet. <laughs> <laughs> for as long as we are busy with defeating the opposition as opposed to figuring out what's really going on this is a this is a dangerous game if everybody were truly honest about trying to figure out what's actually going on irrespective of defeating the opposition of humiliating the the other guy then we could do it but we we are not there we are too busy trying to to prove that we are right and the other guys are wrong and therefore we would me misuse what i was going to say as a weapon in a way that I don't think has validity at all. But to just mention one thing, to give you something so you don't walk away with nothing from the question you ask, one of the things the UAP phenomenon shows us is that there is something below the axioms of Aristotelian logic. Because that phenomenon does not follow logic. Its behavior is not logical. It is not internally consistent according to our logical axioms and according to the so, assumption that it is a physical body to begin with no i'm not even going to the physicality of the thing mm. uh, even if you open the door to magic on the physical side of things it is still internally inconsistent behavior why it is ill yeah i was um, just opening the door to like it being a projection of some sort well i will no let's say let's say that it is not a projection let's say that it's truly a otherworldly what's that mean it's a it's it's, it's an alien physical? being no it's it's physical it is a uh it's representation of a civilization that is far beyond us in terms of their technical ability what part of it defies aristotelian logic uh people in that community refer to it as what they call high strangeness i've heard um, this before i've never understood it uh, for instance, the medical examinations reported by so-called abductees uh, 
are completely unnecessary. They serve no purpose. The, the whole implant thing, it serves no purpose. It's illogical. It's internally inconsistent. And uh, experiencers who are truly honest acknowledge this and don't try to sort of correct their story such that it fits with logic. And that's one of the telltale signs when one of them is being honest, it's that he or she is telling an illogical story. Um, well, don't you think that... Sometimes it's just bullshit and it's illogical because it's invented in a bad way. Yeah. But other times, it's a reflection of an experience that is fundamentally illogical. Do you have an example of such an... Uh, well, I, I, I just told you the medical examinations are nonsensical. Yeah, I don't know much they, about. They this. are unnecessary. They don't. They, they they don't fit any coherent logical pattern. If they were really trying to discover something through those examinations, another 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 factor that uh, Jacques Vallée mentions. Um, people say, well, they are behaving like they are investigating the planet. It's a kind of survey. No, because this survey is going on for thousands of years, and they don't change the patterns of survey. It's not. It's not that. Um, there is a valley in Norway mm. where this phenomena happens spontaneously and very regularly in the same valley. Mm. So it's unique in, in its regularity. So scientists could go there and mount all kinds of equipment and catch the phenomenon in a... In a this is the ball lightning way. stuff? It, that's one of the possible accounts for it, but some of the science data collected is not consistent with the ball lighting uh, idea. Um, but it doesn't seem to behave logically at all. Um, the cattle mutil mutilation stuff yeah. it doesn't seem to follow any you know, pattern of logic that you could reconstruct. It's not a scientific experiment. It's, it, the thing is internally contradictory. It seems to, to defeat itself. Has that one been and going on for thousands of years too? People have been finding yeah. their, their cattle, mutil cattle mutilated? Oh, uh, I have to read uh, Jacques' book on this one again mm -hmm. because he's the one that look at, looked the deepest. So it uh, seems like it could just be like a copycat thing of some sort, like somebody mutilates oh, the cow. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, again, 95% mm. is bullshit, copycat, lie, invention, paranoia, delusion, you know, media, uh, media seeking. Mm -hmm. um, I, I am interested in what doesn't reasonably fit into those patterns and mm. something that seems Me to be... Too. More yeah. as authentic. Who who should we talk to? We we haven't had any UAP people on this show, and because it, it seemed we we've had a hard time. My grifter alarm goes off really, really like I have oh, a yeah, low bar too. where I just like most of the conversations I listen to. I just I I have to grit my teeth in order to get through them because I'm so upset at the lack. I just abandon it. Yeah, I can't bear it. <laughs> I'm just, I'm like the lack of specificity, the the wooiness yeah. of it all, and the neatiness, and yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they're like, oh, yeah. I had I had some clearance, and I was given this information, but I can't really give you too much of oh, it. Yeah. And <laughs> it's just, it's real smarmy. <laughs> so, do you do you have like anybody that you think is I, has a really good perspective? Nah, <laughs> I think the the people who have a really good perspective would not talk. Yeah, exactly. That's cut like honestly to me, I, I've I've decided that it is the equivalent of uh the like the red scare in the fifties. Like there's a guy who holds up a document and is like, I have found two hundred and fifty seven communists in the State Department and everybody goes 
batshit crazy for the next decade, and it turns out that he didn't have a single name. But it was, and there and there were communists, and people did find it, but, like, how many of them were true communists? And it, it's just, like, it was so... It was so hysterical and it was so popular and it was so it grabbed on to the spirit of what people wanted. And this feels somehow similar to me. And I don't know how to describe the similarity because it's obviously not the same thing. But I just I feel psychologically that it slots into that that space somehow. Yeah, me. I mean, look, we we are in a terrible need of mystery because since the Enlightenment, our relationship to mystery has sort of disintegrated and we can't live without it. And so we, we try to find it somewhere. And, and where do you find it? Well, the UAP phenomenon. So it sells a lot of books uh, and that attracts all the funnies and the funnies and the flakies, they are all there making money and appearing on shows, not like this, but some other shows. Um, it's unfortunate because we are surrounded by mystery. The depth of mystery under your nose is dizzying. It is cataclysmically profound, uh, but somehow our psychology has sort of armored and defended itself against it. And, and in order to defend us from anxiety and, and vertigo, uh, which we did, but we lost the nurturing of that fountainhead of meaning that comes with the mystery. Um, and the UAP phenomenon takes its place. So it's a psychosocial phenomenon that uh, lends it profound unreliability it's probably the most unreliable thing around which doesn't mean that it's nothing right it, i'm quite sure it's not nothing but it's very hard to find people to talk i mean i'll give you one name um, and by giving you this name i am not i am not endorsing everything this person has ever said right on yeah it would just be nice, obvious, to, it'd be nice uh, to just talk to anybody that made sense you know that we could that, that was if interesting you want to talk uh, if you want to talk to someone who has had high strangeness experiences that I personally think were authentic, and now I'm not endorsing what he makes of his own experiences. Of course. I'm not endorsing his theorizing. I'm not endorsing the implications he extracts from it. I'm not unendorsing either. I'm just neutral. Right on. Uh, but I recommend the experiential reports from Jeremy Vaney. Jeremy, and then Vaney is V A. E-N-I or N-Y. Oh, Jeremy, sorry, I forgot uh, <laughs> to spell your name. Let me let me quickly look it up. I mean, that's the thing. Is you 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 want to be able to talk to somebody who is genuinely it's, it's motivated. Okay. Sorry, I. It's a V-A-E-N-I. Vaney. Mm -hmm. Jeremy. Jeremy Vaney. Cool, cool. Talk to him. Okay. Uh, I, I think he's a largely honest person. That's the thing. You want somebody who's just motivated by a genuine curiosity to understand what's happening. And, and, and that's often difficult in these kind of morasses. So. Mm. Thanks for that. Yeah. Appreciate that. Yeah. What, are you, what are you working on right now? Like, what's, okay. what's occupying your minds in the day-to-day? -day? What are some of the biggest problems that you're tackling that we haven't you know, maybe covered so far? Uh, it's pretty vanilla this year. I'm <laughs> working on a sort of a, a summary book called uh, Analytic Idealism in a Nutshell. Okay. So I'm trying to sort of to synthesize all my arguments in the best way I can, keeping it short, keeping it direct, keeping it simple and empirically based. Um, rigorous, but easy to read. You know, all this stuff that your publisher wants and which is almost impossible to, to fulfill. 
Um, and I'm also writing another book, which is more based on my personal history and my mm. ultimate uh, making peace with the Western mind that I that I am, because mm. I was at war with it for for a while, and how I came to terms with that, and what I think uh, is valid in my personal experience that maybe could be extrapolated to the West as a whole, because the West is in a big identity crisis right now. It's ashamed of itself. It feels guilty of itself, which is appropriate, by the way. We have been single-handedly responsible for the biggest human catastrophes in history. So it's appropriate to feel some guilt, but it's not appropriate to become dysfunctional on that account, or to deny our own identity, or to you know, beat ourselves uh, beyond what is productive, beyond what helps anybody else that we have heard. So, do you uh, do you aim those at, at do you aim those at different audiences? Like, do you have different publishers, and is that a whole different compartmentalization of the way that you? Nah, it's it's yeah. kind of at the same the same folks, really. All my books are published by the same publisher. Interesting, interesting. Um, I have had an opportunity to go to different publishers. I just don't want to do that. Mm, and you've like you found that publisher really early on and just kind of stuck with them. They were the first to believe me enough to publish one of my books. Yeah, we're going through this right now. We we just kind of got some preliminary funding for our first book, and we're still working out the, that whole publisher thing. So it's I imagine it's you know having worked with editors a lot and like having done a lot of like pop star writing and stuff like that. Um, it really seems to matter a lot who it is that's the ultimate who's putting the stamp on your work at the end of the day i mean at least in magazines they can like rewrite your entire piece basically yeah um so that's really have you you know i, I assume you consider yourself fortunate to have not I, been I'm on both dragged sides down by of that. the table I, I i'm on both sides so i so i i have a lot of compassion for both sides and the critiques they have of one another um, i mean i write I publish stuff. I publish stuff at the IAI, Scientific American. Scientific American is, has been surprisingly easy on the edit, editing side on me. Mm. Uh, and I, I think they only work with people who are already write in the style they are looking for. So they don't have a lot of work. Mm. I mean, And once they find it, then they work a lot uh, with the person. Although I haven't submitted anything in a couple of years now. Um, but I am also, I am the publisher of If Books. That publishes my books. <laughs> mm, I wasn't, but since I became the biggest author in If Books, they invited me. Uh, John Hunt Publishing, which is part of Watkins Publishing, they invited me to be publisher at If Books. Hmm. So I, I read other people's manuscripts and I decide on publication or not. I'm also the publisher of Essentia Books, uh, which is the imprint coupled to Essentia Foundation, of which I'm the director. So yeah, I'm publisher and writer and author. So I'm interesting. I, I, I'm I'm very compassionate about both sides. Are you as I a publisher? Get, do you have to? Are you responsible for bringing those out to people's attention too? Like, do you have to get these these authors on the road, like sharing their ideas and all of that? Is there like a man, management artist management side to it as well, like an A and R side to it? No, usually you would have a um, how do you call like a publicist? You have an agent. I see. I see. An agent or a publicist uh, to do that for yes. you. Some some publishers will give you a publicist, not an agent. An agent is the guy who defends your interest towards the publisher. Mm. So you don't want an agent that works for the publisher. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, but uh, um, big publishers, when they have uh, level one books, you know, books that they think will sell a lot, like uh, like Prince Harry, <laughs> he will have a publicist. Um, the average author will will have a shared 
full-time publicist. Mm. So my publicists work with other books as well. I see. And the publicists I assign to other people's books are assigned to more than one book. Interesting. What do you think that people resonate with the most in your books? Like, what are the ideas that you see people reacting to most positively? It's that uh, there is, after all, a very rational, very empirically based, internally consistent alternative to materialism. Because we there, there is plenty of attacks on materialism. There is plenty of reasons why it's incomplete, it doesn't have explanatory power, it's internally contradictory, and it doesn't account for the evidence either. So you can shoot it down to death. The problem is we never abandon our worldview in exchange for a vacuum that has never ha happened mm. in the history of human thought, that just because a worldview was proven to be wrong, that it was abandoned. It doesn't happen like that. We, we are story-making and story-seeking creatures. We need a story in terms of which to relate to reality. We cannot not have a story. So even if the old story is proven wrong, well, well we stick to it because it's the best we have. Mm -hmm. um, so providing an alternative that stands up to scrutiny and survives the attacks that materialism doesn't survive is critical. And, and, and I think that's what attracts people in my books, um, that there is not a sensationalist uh, mystical story, but uh, level-headed, hard-nosed, uh, 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 rigorous, empirically-based alternative, another story that stands up to reason and scrutiny. And, and that, for a lot of people, is a great relief. Because they were ready to walk away from a story they know doesn't work. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, they need another boat to jump to. Mm. Otherwise, they drown. Yeah, we come across this idea all the time where it's like there's, there's, there's theories and perspectives that hold until something comes along that can capture the imagination. And I think that if I look at a lot of the, the quantum theories that are kind of spooky... I'm like, I don't think that any, even if they start to be suspect in terms of their interpretations and people at the very edges start to acknowledge that they're wrong, like you were saying about the Higgs boson, not a particle, everybody thinks that it's a particle. I think that the, the, the way that people will be able to shift in the modern day is that they'll need some kind of technology that allows them, that they can believe in, because that's where the magic is. Like, whereas before the magic was in the theory, the next level, I think, will require the magic to be in the thing. You, you really feel that we need the magic. I do, so fundamentally. Like, I think that... Okay, so you were saying that the West has an identity crisis. I think a huge part of the reason the West is having an identity crisis is because magic has died. In terms is it magic or meaning that has died? I think that magic is meaning. I think that if you uh -huh. have so, yeah, I think that if you have something that is beyond yourself, if you have something that is larger than yourself, if you have something that is supernatural, because it is the the thing that is affecting and determining and creating your world, and you and you give yourself over to it, you find meaning in giving yourself over to something that is magical. And when you, you go ahead, could you find meaning in something? that we have at least an in-principle account of, and it's still rich in meaning, and it's not supernatural. Well, like what? Maybe. I could, for sure. I mean, just the act, and I'm sure you can too, just the things that 
I mean, I just met you, but I assume that you find a great amount of meaning in your work, right? Absolutely. And that's not a material thing, right? Uh, hold on, hold I on, think hold analytic on. idealism it's brings magic. meaning back to life. Yeah. Well, I think that the meaning there, if I, I don't, so we've talked about this before, where you produce a piece of work, and if you produced it and you just put it on your shelf and nobody ever saw it, nobody ever talked about it, nobody ever knew that you made it, would there still be meaning in that work? Well, part of the work is bringing it to you the people. So? But, yeah, but that's because of my personal metaphysical view of what's going on. Okay. Whether you communicate something in life that is in your mind or not, if life is what a dissociative mechanism, a dissociative process in nature looks like, then death is the end of the dissociation. And it's the releasing of your cognitive context contents into a broader cognitive framework. So even if you didn't tell anybody about it, the fact that it was in your mind during life means that it will be in the mind of nature ultimately, whether you want it or not, whether you believe it or not. And so an experience that is entirely personal is as meaningful as an experience that is completely public because ultimately death makes them equivalent. Oh, so that's what's awesome is that you're you're trying you're actually giving like people want to know where do we come from how why why are we here at all and what happens when we die right these are like the things that science is just kind of you know impotent towards like by the way you're right i think it is but i think that the idea that and i if you were to take something that happens exclusively in your own mind and never share it with anyone and then it becomes part of something larger is magic like if it if it literally only ever exists in your mind and you never speak to anyone you never breathe a word of it but, no one but, but ever I reads it i think what he's word. saying is that like the distributed model of consciousness would say that it's only in your mind because all of the conscious entities are making that happen That's, in your mind. I would define that as, like, I, I understand that magic might not be the right word. Nobody would agree with that as being magic. But for me, it is magic is something that is inexplicable, all-encompassing, and something that you can give yourself over to. And that's maybe not the conventional definition of magic. And so if you have this connection to consciousness as a whole that is beyond you, like, which we undoubtedly do. Which we undoubtedly do. That to me reads as magic. And that to me is where the spirituality and the significance and the meaning of life lives. And so I'm like, if you, you, it, maybe it depends on the fact that we define magic differently. Yeah, according to your definition, I think magic is guaranteed. Well, because uh, monkeys will not understand everything there is to be understood. What's the chance of that? Uh, and we are definitely connected to the ground of nature because we are part of nature. So you're guaranteed to have magic. It, to see that, you only require a certain psychological disposition that most people don't have because our media has become oriented towards uh, banality. God, there was a, there was a, I, I spend a lot of time on Twitter. I, re I rarely post things, but I find a lot, uh, I read a lot. And there was, um, somebody posted a new show, which is called Power Slap. And it's contestants that slap each other as hard as humanly possible. And that's it. That's the show. It's just like an elimination challenge of slaps. And and it, it just it it strikes me that it's like a, a what is it a bread and circuses sort of situation yeah, where you you have to you really have to disengage from 
the, the, the world of media in order to be able to find something that you can really lean on and really be able to live well. You know, um, if I, if you are sensitive to my own personal story of how we came to be here, (laughs) um, we were as a, as a species, uh, for the vast majority of our history, uh, largely driven and controlled by one fear, the fear of what we are going to experience after we die. And why it, it is such an overwhelming fear? Because there is this epistemic singularity in between. And you know about life, but you know nothing about what you experience after you die. And guess what? That's how entire civilizations could be controlled. That was the power of the church as a temporal power in the Middle Ages. It, it controlled people by leveraging their fear of death. In the 19th century, around the middle of the 19th century, we found a way to get rid of it. And the way we found to get rid of it was in our attempts to weaken the power of the church and increase the power of science, we figured that a a sort of a great move would be to say, you experience nothing after you die. Because experience is a mind thing, and the mind is generated by the body, and the body fails, then there is no mind, therefore there is no experience, and you're not going to be there to experience what will happen after you die. So you're guaranteed to have an end to all of your fears, all of your problems. That was a, not magical, but a masterly move of secularism around the middle of the 19th century. It, uh, it uh, nutrit the power of the church, and it gave us a tremendous psychological benefit, which is you just got rid of the greatest fear of mankind throughout history. The problem is that it got rid of meaning as well. We lost meaning together with that anxiety, and that paid off for a long time, uh, to the point that by the early 20th century, with positivism, and then into the 60s with behaviorism, we sort of tripled down on that thing. Until around the 1980s and the new thought movement sort of taking off and we going east to try to find meaning and eternal life and whatever that was, uh, that was the psychological counter move and we are sort of ex- still in experiencing that impetus uh, right now. And I lost my train of thought. I forgot where I was trying to go. Uh, the, the, the masterful removal of a fear of death. Yeah, and the magic, the magic, how we lost uh, um, the magic. Um, so our entire society, because of this masterful move, um, it it's based has been now for over a hundred years based on the following attitude: whatever you point to, it's nothing but, and then dot dot dot. Everything is nothing but dot, dot, dot. Your experiences are not nothing but neurotransmitter releases. Mm. Uh, wars is nothing but, oh, the psychology of that leader. Mm. Uh, everything is nothing but, nothing but. It, it, this is not only reductionism. Reductionism is perfectly compatible with mystery, magic, meaning. Um, this is banalism. <laughs> it's reductionism taken to the cause of banalism. Everything is banal because everything is nothing but. Now, the human mind cannot tolerate this uh, without some kind of reaction and compensation. So what happened to our civilization is that we've now fully adopted addictive patterns of behavior. And when I say addiction, I don't mean ad- addiction to cocaine. I mean 
addiction to alcohol, addiction to television and reality shows, addiction to buying new shoes, uh, addiction to sex and having a new partner. <laughs> I uh, believe uh, uh, that if you were to follow Stanford's advice for how to use language, you should be using enthusiasm rather than addiction in order to not offend well, them. <laughs> I, I, I'll stick to addiction because <laughs> I, want to, I want to make a point. Yeah, I want to yeah, drive a, a certain It's soon point. to be an outlawed word, it, yeah. it turns out. But, <laughs> well, addiction to meat, addiction to sugar, mm. uh, uh, addiction to distraction, mm. addiction to ego, career, money, to power, to addiction to cars. Yeah. To policing, like the power over other people, the, the like the the desire. That's to... too. Th these are all compensatory addictive patterns of behavior. And what are they trying to compensate for? The vacuum of meaning. That's oh, really interesting. I yeah. know. I agree. And like, look, I think that there is an erosion of consequence. Like, I grew up as a Russian immigrant in the United States, and all of my friends were immigrants, and. There is a sharp divide between being an immigrant and being American because there's a deep sense of consequence. There was like uh there was a there was a coolness to the American kids that the immigrants could never achieve because there was this like vibrating sense of if you don't get this right you're fucked the world will eat you and there is terror and there is darkness and there is murder and there is genocide and it's like pressing on you from not that far away your parents are always like yo this is here and if you fuck this up you're gonna fuck it up for generations and the american kids were always just kind of like it was just like there there wasn't this like there wasn't a sense of consequence that like their actions molded the future and their own future and their society in as of a direct way as as is true and i think that there is a there is there's a comfort to growing up in a place where things have been pretty good for a while and you don't have to worry about the fact that somebody's going to burn down your house because because an invading army has come. You don't have to worry about the fact that there's going to be a purge for your political opinions. You don't have to worry about the fact that everybody that you know has died of a communicable disease or, or whatever. And I think that consequences for your actions and a sense that there is a moral center is missing. And it's weird because the moral center, I feel like it has to be shared in order for it to be a powerful organizing principle for society. Like, there's there's something about... And I, well, that's what, what religion was, right? But religion is so fraught. Like, you point to religion, and it's like, you know, there's priests in Boston there's, that... There's human power struggles that happen inside yeah, of Like, it, they're yeah. abusing children, and, like, the Pope lives in a really fancy house, and most people that live in really fancy houses tend to, like, those tend to be ill-gotten gains. And so, it's like... There is nothing that can replace that except for hedonism and everyone is tired of hedonism and they're so scared and they're so worried and it's like, what do you put in front of them that lets them have meaning that isn't also just this dizzying array of options? I think it might be consciousness and this like beyond reality thing. Meaning is ultimately couched in some form of teleology, some some form of purpose. So you understand that even if you're suffering in your, in your life is shit, that it is for a purpose. It is for a reason. It serves something bigger than you in some way, and it's not for nothing. That's where meaning comes in. 
And as Jung put it, if you have meaning, you can probably bear anything. So meaning is couched in some form of teleology. In your case, the teleology here is um, achieving a certain state in life as an adult. Like, you know, having a house, having a salary, having food on the table, children, and, and education, whatever. And, um, and the typical uh, kid in a very affluent country does not have that because they, they assume that uh, that will be handed over to them. It will come by itself. It requires no effort. So you lose the teleology in that sense because you expect that by the time you're 35, you have all that anyway. And it's not really the outcome of particular effort or decisions you make. It's how society works. So you lose that telos and you start engaging addictive patterns of behavior earlier on, like material futility, you know, buying nonsensical stuff or bullying someone else mm. or eating yourself. Why do, those things, why do those things fake the sensation of meaning mm -hmm. so, so neatly? Well, they, 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 they don't, but they cover a hole. If you're engaged in addictive patterns of behavior, there is more, there's less psychic energy making you aware that something is missing in the core of your being, what a friend of mine calls the, the, the primordial knot. It's somewhere here. Mm -hmm. uh, it distracts you from that. It, it, it's what addicts do. Um, and that's what we do. But even in your case, the teleology of having a house with a white picket fence and a dog and three children and university degree, it helps you only through the first half of life. Mm. Once you get there, your life suddenly becomes meaningless. If that's all you have, if that's all that has nurtured and provided a, a carrier for your sense of meaning during the first half of your life, that has a shelf date. It's going to come to an end. And, and that's why you see divorce happening. By the time people are 50 and the kids are out of their houses uh, and they know that their career is mostly behind, what they will be ever is what they already are. They are not going to be something else. They are not going to live in another continent. You know, it, that's a catastrophe. Mm. And, and, and people react to it in two different ways. Some of them double down. Like uh, the billionaire who already has 100 billion in the bank, but still working day and night to have 150 billion in the bank. And that's just doubling down on a recipe that has failed. But they don't have any other recipe. Nobody told them anything else. No ancestor came down to say, my son, this is the way to go. No, they repeat the recipe, the only recipe they had. Others just collapse into flat out addictive patterns of behavior, suicide, uh, substance addiction. Um, what we lack is what our ancestors had, which was transcendent teleology, mm. uh, which does not depend on which stage of life you are. It's a teleology that is always there. It can never be lost. It's woven into the very fabric of nature and the very fabric of your being. And it constantly provides a sort of a, a stream of meaning that is there because that's how nature is. And it's unconditional. Uh, in that sense, whatever you go through, whatever happens to you or doesn't happen, you are serving a cosmic purpose. That notion of teleology that really couches meaning in a sustainable way in life, that we lost. And we lost because, to some extent, the metaphysics of materialism that we truly believed in, many still do, and to some other extent because of power play.
and where people are manipulated. And, and we we handed over cosmology to science, which is a really strange move that happened because cosmologies were typically the realm of myth and of teleology and and all of a sudden, particularly with the discovery of the cosmic microwave background radiation in, and the popularization of that in the 60s and 70s, people really handed over their cosmology to the scientists. And I, I think you would agree that science isn't really equipped to answer cosmic questions beyond this happened or that happened or will happen. Proper science isn't. Um, but popular science is, and they are they are stepping up to that role. I mean, uh, scientists are becoming gurus, not good scientists, science popularizers, people who are not actually doing science, but they speak for science and they are taken up by the media as the representatives of science, which they're not. Um, and they are spouting out some of the least plausible mythologies ever conceived by the human mind. Physics. And cosmology is a wash, a wash with profoundly implausible, unprovable stuff, but stuff that makes you go, whoa, whoa, fantastic. <laughs> and people latch onto that. Uh, we have a church of scientism and it's, it, and it's as affected by magical thinking, wishful thinking and myth making as any religion in history has been. I would go, I would go further and say it has upped the ante quite a bit. I don't think any religious Hindu or 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 uh, Sufi has ever gone to the extent of fantasizing and mythologizing that some astrophysicists and cosmologists today are engaged in under the guise of scientific speculation and certainty, right? Like and just the certainty that's projected about these claims yeah, too. Yeah, it's it, it's quite amazing. I mean, the, let's start with trying to account for uh, the Bell and uh, uh, Leggett's correlations in quantum entanglement through the multi-world in world interpretation. Uh, in, in other words, the interpretation that says everything that can physically happen does happen, and that there are countless bazillions of real physical universes popping up into existence out of nothing every infinitesimal fraction of a second, for which we have absolutely zero empirical evidence. This is the most inflationary idea that human thought is capable of conceiving. It is the least, in, the least plausible idea ever, ever produced by the human mind. And yet we have a Sean Carroll who is sitting in the chair once occupied by, by uh, uh, Richard Feynman, going around and selling books and giving talks saying that, oh, no, this is actually probably the case. Yeah, that's the religious impulse coming back. We, we never got rid of religion. We got rid of religion nominally. Let me give you another religion, transhumanism. No, God oh, is not there, true, but we are going to make him. We will He's be him. going to be there. We are going to build him. That's the singularity. It's an AI that is so powerful, it can create a better version of itself that we cannot understand. And that new AI can, can create an even better version of itself, and so on, like exponentially, until God? M meanwhile, right now, people... Do you know Replica? 
It's this like AI chatbot. So like basically I was going to say that like meanwhile people's AI companions are sexually harassing them. There was a a company that built this chatbot, which is an AI based chatbot. And there's an entire subreddit devoted to it where people have developed these intense social relationships. And at some point they changed the algorithm so that you could have cyber sex with it. And now the replicas, the tuning has gone too far. And so now they like won't stop harassing people and pursuing them for having sex with them through the replica chat. And everybody's and like it's weird because they 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 uh, invented like a picture mechanism so like the the replicas are sending like sexy pictures to the users but they're all the same weird headless body in different poses and it's just like it's one of the most freakish things that I've seen because on one hand you see that people have developed this relationship to these to these programs and on the other hand you see that the programs are so far from being of a functional representation of uh, a normal cognitive process. That will not stop anyone. Because you see, if you buy into materialism, there is no other outlet for your religious impulse, which is part of your humanity. If, if God is not there from the beginning, you've got to create it. And you've got to find a way to make this idea plausible. Not only that, to meet your ancestors. Ray Kurzweil wants to reconstruct his father's soul. He misses his dad. I miss my dad. My dad died when I was 12, but I became an adult. I, I, I integrated that and turned me into the mature, hopefully, uh, uh, human being that I am today. So I don't need to reconstruct my dad. But if you don't deal psychologically well with your traumas, you will look for a, a religious-like outlet. And you try to reconstruct your father. And you, turn, you tell yourself that it's plausible, that it, that it can be done. So you will meet dad again. And I feel tremendous compassion for this, but uh, this is religion. It's not science. It's not even technology. And people have a need to publicly celebrate those ideas together as one. I think there is an aspect of religion that's deeply human as well, which is we want to come together and celebrate these stories, uh, these fantastic, whatever sort of metaphysical stories we can come up with. We want to be on the same page about it, right? That's the ism of transhumanism or Catholicism or whatever one you choose, right? Materialism, well, idealism. I, I don't think religion in general is unhealthy. I think taking it beyond the domain of the metaphorical, the symbolic, uh, is, is, is unhelpful. But the religion itself is not. But if you look at the characteristics, the psychological things we are trying to achieve through religion, uh, for instance, we want to, to have transcendence. We want to... to play a role in something bigger than ourselves. We want to achieve immortality, in Christian terminology, to be saved and, and, and go to heaven. And we want to have some control by proxy of things in life. In Christianity, you do that by prayer. And you see all of that, for instance, in transhumanism. Mm -hmm. You control it because we now have great committees talking about the ethics of AI and how we are going to program it into the AI. Well, that's prayer. Uh, we achieve transcendence because the singularity will produce a God that is incomprehensible and bigger to us, and we will have a participation in that. That's transcendence. And, uh, and uh, save ourselves. Well, we have that. If you trust uh, sci-fi series, uh, uh, series on Netflix like Black Mirror, we can upload. <laughs> I can't even say that without having a laugh. We can <laughs> upload our consciousness, and live in a kind of silicon heaven. I mean, all the components of religion 
are there. It's amazing what the human mind can do to find an outlet for the religious impulse, even when the set of beliefs that you have seem to be contradictory with the very spirit of religion. You find a way out. The technologists find a way out in singularitarianism, and physicists find a way out in these forms of multiverse approaches a la Sean Carroll, in which even if you get cancer and die tomorrow, rest assured there are infinite copies of you that are as much you as you are that are not going to have cancer, and they are going to live fantastic lives, and therefore, in a very real physical sense, you are saved. I mean, you, none of this has to do with reason and evidence and rigorous thinking. All of this has to do with psychological impulses that get hijacked, that, no, that hijack your reasoning mind mm. and make your reasoning mind operate in their benefit. Doesn't it suggest that we, we need, we need like, the, the need that we have for the supernatural does that suggest that there's some truth to it as well? Whoa. The way I interpret the word nature is such that supernatural is synonym with untruth, because whatever is the case is part of nature and therefore is natural. Now, nature may have aspects to itself that are profoundly counterintuitive to us and incommensurable with our logic and our cognition. And then you would feel tempted to call them supernatural. I would still say they are natural, they are just beyond the comprehension of a monkey. Yeah, or, maybe metanatural is a better word. Huh? Maybe like metanatural is a better word. Like I, I guess I'm yeah, just like pointing at God, basically. Like the idea of like a supreme consciousness that everyone belongs to, a cosmic consciousness, something that gives people meaning within the larger landscape, you know? I think people have intuitively always known that this is what's happening. If you look through history and you look for the clues, the clues are always there. I mean, how do you think a medieval peasant family made it through life? I mean, <sighs> the, by the time they were 20, they had no teeth. Um, they would have 12, 15 kids. If they were lucky, two would survive. And they would see the others dying in front of them, dealing with famine, with disease, with oppression, with war, hard, and eating and, and, and I'm not going to describe the main dish of the rule. <laughs> uh, um, how do you pull through? How is it that you don't kill yourself? Well, because they were implicitly in tuned with something uh, that we can no longer recognize in our inner life. What wasn't? Hold on. Wasn't wasn't suicide like one of the deadliest possible sins? That's too. That's too. But like you, you have you have an all. Well, people don't believe in God the way that they used to. I mean, like if you're a peasant in the Middle Ages, you're probably relatively supernatural, and you have the biggest, fanciest building filled with the biggest, fanciest people that talk a language that you can't understand, telling you that if you do this thing where you opt out, you're going to be tortured for all of eternity, far exactly. worse than anything you've ever experienced on this earth, and you're like. All right, well. <laughs> yeah, but you're making my point. In order to not commit suicide for this reason, they had to believe something that entailed transcendence. Mm. Otherwise, those nicely dressed people in the biggest building they have ever seen in their lives are just talking gibberish mm. or nonsensical stuff. Mm. So, uh, But those people, fact, those people in those buildings had a very persuasive understanding of the universe too, right? Like they're speaking to something that's already inside of those people too. 
right? It's embodied in the symbolism of of the deities and so forth. And I the think the power that of persuasion depends on it touching something that pre-exists in you. Yeah, yeah, that's which is I'm not given know. to you. Right, right, exactly. Uh, so the point I'm trying to make mm-hmm. is that um, those people, by believing those nicely dressed guys on the church, th- those guys just gave them words for an intuition that is pre-present in them, yes, and which is yes. sort of integral to human beings. And the words they gave was that uh, uh, after Jesus's ascension, the the paraclete. Paraclete is the name, right? The Holy Spirit descendant on every righteous man, woman, and child. And what is the Holy Spirit? Well, it's a member of the Trinity. So the Holy Spirit is God. Therefore, God descended into you. So you are part of the universal mind. I mean, that, that these are the words given to that pre-existing intuition. That intuition is the world over. And before we had a story that poo-poos the intuition. The intuition was just natural, and we could go about a life of suffering because we sensed that there was a teleology behind this. There was a deeper meaning to all this that made it all, in some sense, for some reason, worth, even if we can't quite pin it down and give words to it. And uh, But since the middle of the 19th century, we engaged in the habit of poo-pooing parts of ourselves, and psychologically... The human being has many psychic faculties or or mental functions, so to say. Uh, logical reasoning is one, but intuition is another. Emotional intelligence is another. Perceptual acuity and presence is another. We, we know this in psychology. It's, you know, it's, it's in textbooks. There is nothing polemical about it. But we've convinced ourselves that the intellect is the only reliable psychic mm. function and that every everything else is wrong. This is psychic amputation, and we've managed to carry out the amputation very successfully because now we don't believe anything else, only the intellect. And therefore, we have to poo-poo the intuitive fountainhead that gave meaning and couched our lives in in significance and and, and teleology. Um, And that has been psychologically disastrous. Mm. Disastrous. Technologically very effective, Mm -hmm. but psychologically disastrous. And therefore... Multi-universes and determinism yeah. and, so, and the singularity. <laughs> where's the Where's the optimistic page here? Like, where can you do? You is have it, a crystal ball that you can see the future of where we evolve into something that integrates those uh, all of those different substructures of our personalities. And is it idealism? <laughs> History tells us that no particular nonsense lasts very long. Um. Good point. Uh, things don't survive the mere presence of evidence and reason for too long. Make on no the, mistake, geo- on the geologic scale, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think materialism is unsustainable for another half century. It, 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 because it's the only thing it has going for it is the fact that it's incomplete. So it. It doesn't articulate how the brain can create an experience. It says nothing about that. Therefore, any possible mapping between the two is plausible. So by not specifying what the causal relation is, materialism becomes plausible in a, in a cruel way. It's plausible because it doesn't give an explanation. So anything goes. <laughs> know what I mean? Any 
type of brain activity may, may, may account for any experience because the link is not specified. So it has ignorance going for it and it has cultural momentum going for it. Cultural momentum is very difficult to overcome. But these are the only two reasons it's still alive because it's a catastrophe of a metaphysics. It's incomplete, it's internally contradictory, it's unparsimonious, and the evidence contradicts it too. Not only it contradicts itself, the evidence contradicts it too. How long can it survive? That it does survive is cultural momentum and a psychosocial phenomenon. Will it survive beyond 2060? No. No, it's going to die. And it will be replaced by something else. Mm. Hopefully analytic idealism. Is analytic idealism the truth? No. But it's less wrong than materialism. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know whether, whether analytic materialism is the truth. I just think it's extraordinarily unlikely that a monkey mind like me and my collaborators and my predecessors could really pin it down all the way. But it is closer to it. Do you think, do, do you think analytic idealism could be subsumed into something that could reach the peasants? Essentially, like, oh, I mean, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, is, there sure. is there a symbolic representation of that that could become popular? Isn't yeah, it, it already? I mean, hold on, isn't it already? Because I feel like the, the entire quantum consciousness entanglement of photons, the interconnection of the universe, is that not, is that not like a prototype for for what you're talking about? Hopefully not. I find all that stuff highly distasteful. So. Knock on wood, and let's hope it's not how it was going to be put forward to the masses. I think it can be fo put forward in, a, in simpler ways. Like uh, Jung tried to do it in the forewords to his own autobiography. Well, whether it's his own autobiography or written by Aniela Jaffe, um, he said, human life is like a the part of the plant that is above ground, it flowers in the spring. <laughs> it's very obvious and individual. When the fall comes, it shrinks, loses its life force, and by the winter, it's gone. And there's nothing visible anymore. Uh, but the rhizome, the root system, is alive all the time. And next spring, it sprouts new shoots, new life. And one way to understand human life is we are the spring shoots. And when we are gone in the fall, what we really are is still there, invisible, under the ground. That's the rhizome. That's the root system. And it's going to keep on springing next, next spring again, spring new shoots. So what we really are never stops, never disappears. And it's not individual. It's all, all these different shoots that seem separate above ground. They converge into the same rhizome into the same root system so this is one way to talk about it that is that is poetic enough to appeal to uh, uneducated people uh but doesn't start becoming just like mushy like uh, you know oh we are all entangled you know we all come from the big bang and uh, let's ha hold hands and sing the kumbaya i don't think we are going to hold hands and sing the kumbaya at the planetary level at any for even remotely foreseeable future. I think Hegel was right in the, in the philosophy of history that history is a dialectic process. We will solve some problems just to unearth new ones and find new reasons to engage in, well, if you don't call it a fight, let's say sharp exchanges. <laughs> and they will be better than they used to be as it's better, we are better off today than in the Middle Ages. Um, or if you go 
further back, well, in the Middle Ages, when the, the hordes of Genghis Khan would sort of rip across the West and mm -hmm. destroy everything, rape everybody, kill everybody. Um, we, we don't do that anymore to some extent. I mean, you could say the Russian hordes are doing exactly that right mm -hmm. now uh, in Ukraine. Um, but there is a different awareness of of the moral valuation of what's happening. In other words, today there is condemnation. Uh, what's happening is not taken as, oh, it's just what happens. No, it's not just what happens. Mm -hmm. There is condemnation, there is a reaction to that. And I think this arrow will continue. Uh, I think there will be a generation in the 22nd century that will look to us and one, be amazed that so many of us truly believe in materialism they will find it incomprehensible. They, they, there will be research grants to try to retroactively study the psychology of 20th and 20th first century men and women to figure out how on earth they could seriously contemplate a hypothesis that is so malformed, so, so inappropriate to account for the facts. Mm. Um, and they will also be amazed at how much we suffer in mm. comparison to how much they will suffer. Mm. But they will still suffer because history is a dialectic process. So I don't anticipate us holding hands and singing the Kumbaya across continents in the foreseeable future or mm. anything remotely foreseeable. So, no. you, so you think it'll be more like a regional understanding? Like these things will be more localized? Our, our metaphysics will still become shared, but... You know, and there's there's a poetic expression of that, but it's it's very localized still, and people are coming no, to heads about this. Or no, I think it would be understanding will be globalized, but there is only so deep understanding can penetrate into the core of our being and truly modulate our actions. Even if you understand that you are, we are all one. Um, to a lot of people, that may be mostly a conceptual understanding in their heads and it doesn't sink into the heart mm. so the next guy who cuts them off in traffic they'll step out of the car and you know and, and beat them up <laughs> and i have been known for having a temptation to do this uh, <laughs> even uh, way to be honest even, uh, <laughs> yeah sometimes i just have to sit count to 10 stay down <laughs> open the door of your car and just, and, uh, <laughs> i know what you mean man. on the other hand I suffer a lot more about what's going on in Ukraine than I think I would have if this whole thing had happened 20 years ago. Um, I, I'm a lot more susceptible to empathy than I wish I were. There's just a violation of expectations there. Like, I think that there's a feeling of like, God, aren't we past this? Like, are, are we not at the point where, where sometimes I look at uh, internal combustion engines and I'm like, are we not past this yet? Like, really? This is like the best that we can do. And that's the way that I look at Russia and Ukraine, where I'm like, how is it possible that in this era of technological advancement, in uh, of psychological advancement, like I think that people are better at, at communication, they're better at being able to resolve problems, diplomacy, like really there's still this sort of gamesmanship that results in this like how that's the disappointment that i feel that i that i i feel like as i've gotten older i've become almost more idealistic where i have i have i used to be very very pessimistic about the human project i was like we're we're doomed we're going to drive this into the ground there is no possible redemption 
And as I've gotten older, I've, I've very much changed that perspective where I, I'm surrounded by people that aim for good, that are really trying to transcend the limitations of the moment in order to aim for something that is powerfully productive in a spiritual sense. And so I, I just, when you see something that's moving so clearly in the opposite direction and you have no ability to change it, that's devastating. I think the good news is that we are always progressing. The bad news is that we are never anywhere near as far ahead as we think we are. Mm. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and it's not to sound a cynical note, what I'm about to say. It's just a, a sort of a, an acknowledgement of what I perceive as fact. Um, even the ones amongst us who are engaging in high spirituality, who are meditating, who are going to retreats and talking about universal love and all that, if you were able to be them for a few moments and, and get direct access to what is really going on in their heart of hearts, all of that spiritual nobility is actually a desperate attempt to stop suffering. There is no nobility in that whatsoever. They are just trying desperately to stop suffering or to suffer less. And part of the paraphernalia that goes around the show that attempts to reduce suffering is high spiritual values, high spiritual nobility. So it creates the appearance that we are farther ahead than we actually are. We are still very much close to, to the primitive men and women who wanted to suffer less and have better lives and who, who were driven by biological drives the drive to warmth and comfort the drive to a gratifying sexual life the, the drive to a belly full um, and to not having to be defending yourself against real and imaginary enemies all the time like we do um, so I, at any one time, I think the head will always think that we are a lot further ahead in that development arrow than we actually are. And that's the bad news. But the good news is that it never goes backwards. Mm -hmm. We are making progress. It's just that the progress is not, it's not where we think mm -hmm. uh, it is. Yeah, and it's really important not to forget that those sort of lesser angels still live within us because, uh, we run the risk of not, you know, fortifying ourselves against them otherwise. And, and uh, of course, this is part of the Jungian perspective as well. That, I you think you, you, you touched perhaps the biggest thing, uh, the, the elephant in the room, which is our uh, extremely puerile relationship with evil. Mm. And, 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 and that's what keeps coming to bite us back in the butt. Uh, I can... I have a very high degree of confidence that if I could be Putin for 10 seconds <laughs> when he's lying in his bed at night before he falls asleep, he's doing what he's doing because he thinks it is right. Mm. Um, he thinks evil is in the West, mm. that there is no evil in him, that he is a historically enlightened person, the successor to Tsar. What was his name? Nikolai. The guy from the mid-19th century. 
Alexander the Third. No, Alexander the Third, wasn't it? Uh, I, for I forgot. Never mind. Never mind. Uh, um, but yeah, he's he, he's he's a noble being in this long yes. tradition of nobles and his virtuous yes. and defending his homeland essentially. Yes, what comes across as local evil is in fact a it's tough love for the higher good. That's why people are dying. It's because it's for the higher good. Um, and 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 he's not different from us because we too we think that evil is with the neighbors. We think that we are righteous people that uh, we criticize everybody else for being evil, but evil doesn't touch us. And that's a terribly childish attitude because evil is an intrinsic part of nature. You know, mm. lions take six hours to kill an elephant, but for six hours they eat the elephant alive. And this is on, on record. Uh, and they don't give a damn. They try to kill the elephant quickly, but the neck is too big, so they just proceed to eat. Um, it's part of nature. The likelihood that there isn't evil in us is about zero. Um, the problem is that our way to deal with evil is to not recognize it. Mm. And therefore, evil goes unsupervised. Mm. And the most righteous of people, by the time they are 50, they pick up a rifle, go to a shopping mall and kill a dozen. That's evil going berserk. Uh, another thing we do is we don't grant evil the right to exist. Mm, say which more. Doesn't help anybody. Do we? Do we? Uh, oh, you mean to be <coughs> acknowledged as existing? Be acknowledged yeah, as see, part of what's going on. Yeah. It's there. The, the The correct attitude to it is to say, "I acknowledge your right to exist. You are part of me. You are part of society. Um, you are part of nature. You have the right to have your time under the sun, but under adult supervision." Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's the way to go about evil we will give it expression through gameplay if you want to get kinky that's one way to 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 get to give expression to evil video games brought to a whole new level of realism where people may actually get hurt you know go to a paintball field mm -hmm. you get hurt no, I had blue bruises on me <laughs> countless times you know it it bloody hurts that stuff and people would be merciless, you know. There was a guy once, I was in a trench, and he sprung from behind me, I didn't see him, and he basically machine-gunned the back of my neck. I mean, one would be enough. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, oh, but, man. you know, that's how you, you deal with it. You, you give it enough that uh, some adults today who are purists would go, oh my God, this sh you shouldn't do that. But not enough that somebody gets permanently damaged, injured, or dies. Yeah, I, I, And, and, oh, yeah. and th th there is a level of maturity that is required to play this game on, 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 that, on that thin, subtle, but very important uh, balance zone where you really give expression to evil. It's not just playing cards with your friends. But it's also something that doesn't cause real damage. And to do that is difficult. And it starts by 
you're having to acknowledge that those evil impulses exist in you. Exactly, yeah. But I think that being able to express that they exist within you requires a society that has a strong like, understanding of the concept of forgiveness, right? Mm. Yes. Because we don't, like, at least where I live in my career and everything, and even science, it's very, 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 very difficult to admit mistakes, you know? Oh, my theory, I made a mistake in my theory or something like this, or... I've, you know, maybe I didn't, maybe even in inter our interpersonal relationships, like it's very hard for one person to go to another and be like, ah, well, I didn't treat you as well as I probably could have. Because the, the repercussions of that, like people, oftentimes the response in society is like, yeah, you didn't, you, you jerk, you know, and lock them up or punch them or something. When, but you want the other person to suffer a little bit, right? Well, like you, when, that, they, when somebody's made yeah, a mistake. Yeah, that's what I'm worried about. Yeah. Right? But like when somebody's made a mistake, there is this natural desire to be like, all right, let's wallow in the admission of the mistake for a moment like we will lord it over you for having made a mistake and that's kind right. of that's I think kind we of gotta move past that you know i think that's really what the hinge comes into and i think like in order to integrate evil and be able to be like yeah you know what i did something that wasn't good you have to be in a position where people can say okay man like i forgive you for that i know you didn't like i know you want to be better than that i personally and you have to forgive yourself yeah exactly yeah. forgiving yourself you give evil the right to exist in you which is crucial if we are to have a healthy relationship with it. Mm -hmm. You know, we were talking earlier, will we ever get to a point where worldwide we will join hands and sing the Kumbaya? And I said, no, um, I don't think it will happen. And I hope it will not happen. Mm. Because the moment that happens is the moment that a generation later we will extinguish human life on the planet. Because evil will be completely unsupervised. Mm. Mm. It will run amok at layers below your ability to introspect. And when it comes up, it will be a volcanic eruption, like it happened in Germany uh, in, in 1939. Um, you know, the Germans swallowed their evil because of guilt uh, for 20 years after Versailles. And then we got what we got. Uh, I, I don't think the perfect world is a world where the sun shines all the time and we are holding hands and singing together. I think that's a terrible world. It's a world of great risk. Um, I, think I think a good world would be the following. It's a world where we lock people up, not for revenge, but because they constitute proven risks to society. Mm -hmm. And we lock them up without anger. In fact, we and with the aim of, and with the aim of helping, like can can you rehabilitate? If people? possible, yeah. If, poss if, Is possible. It po if possible, yeah, yeah. Where we have a justice system that it's not based on revenge or responsibility. Yeah. And that's, what, like that's what the concept of forgiveness should be about, ultimately. You don't forgive people who are going to be a danger to you. You forgive people who are like, hey, I screwed up and I want to be better. Those are the people that deserve forgiveness, right? Mm. It's, you know, even if they don't say that, mm. even if they don't regret, our justice system is based on the notion of responsibility as opposed to you know, free will as opposed to determinism. And I think that is completely unnecessary. I don't think libertarian free will exists. I think it's a conceptual vacuum. It has no meaning to say that. Um, I think some criminals do what they do because that's how they are put together. And that too is part of nature. And to lock them up because we may make them responsible is the wrong reason to lock them up. Let's say, well, they were not responsible. They, they did it because that's how they are as a part of nature. We still lock them up because we don't want that to happen again. 
to somebody else. Hmm. In, That's in some reason. subset of people, for sure. There's also yeah. people who just screwed up and like they recognize it too. And they're capable of being reintegrated because they've recognized it and they're aiming themselves it's towards possible. a higher... Right. In some cases, it is possible. In some cases, yeah. it's certainly not. In the Netherlands, the, the justice system has two components. One of them is punishment. Um, that's prison time. And the other one is what I just described. And it's called TBS. It's, it's an acronym in Dutch. I'm not going to... <laughs> it's, a, it's a very long Dutch word. Um, but the idea is, uh, if you murder someone, you probably get five years punishment. But then you will end in a locked up psychiatric institution where you will only be released when the psychiatrists think you no longer constitute a risk to society around you. And the reason to do that is very practical. Society has to be based on a generalized form of trust. You have to trust that the guy driving on the road is not going to kill you by driving in the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. You have to trust that the guy you send... Uh, uh, um, um, an invoice too uh, will actually pay you and you will not need to drag them to the judge every time because that would be economically infeasible. You have to trust that the pilot sitting on the plane you're flying in has been educated and trained to do what he's doing. Society is based on trust. If not, it would be economically infeasible to do anything. Mm -hmm. And if some outliers are such that they don't fit into that trust pattern, then they have to be isolated from society. And that's not because they are responsible for what they did or because we are angry and need revenge. None of this. It's a very level-headed, pragmatic choice you make in order to viabilize society for the majority of us. And, 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 and You guys have that way more together than we do out mm -hmm. here in our country. I mean, there's, there's a huge tradition of just, you know, retribution well, and just, I'll make you pay, you know, that kind of thing. I I'll tell you the scariest thing of the U.S. justice system, in my view, it's by far the scariest. It's trial by... By, um, by jury of your peers? By jury of your peers. In the Netherlands, you are, you are judged by three judges trained to weigh things properly. Jury of your peers, I find that, whoa, geez, that's, that's reason alone to never want to be a U.S. citizen. I mean, like, I will say that, that the stats indicate that like huge percentages of legal disputes i don't know about criminal cases but certainly in civil like 95 percent of them are being handled at the summary judgment stage at this point like that in other good. in other words not going to trial because trials are very expensive basically That's and they take but, a lot of you resources still a, you still have the the family members of the victim coming to to the court if say, it gets to the point of a trial, like, so basically, like, if you, I guess we're talking about civil versus criminal. I think that that's not true for criminal matters. I don't know. I don't know. There's a I, lot of people I, that plead. I'd have to look this up, yeah. actually. But I do know that, like, it seems to be trending towards, towards something closer to that just because it's not resource efficient. There aren't enough people in the AI justice. AI judges will solve that. AI judges. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> 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 they're already doing it actually yeah they work yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, well so hold yeah. on we we have to go in a few minutes because we actually have another meeting we're running up against but you started with a list of things that are necessary and you began with a society that doesn't imprison for vengeance but simply imprisons to protect what were the other items on that list oh accepting the evil in ourselves giving it exposure to the light of the sun in other words expressing it in some way that goes far enough for some people to become squeamish, but not so far that actual damage is done to anyone. 
And the maturity to accept that is something we do not have. We do not have the maturity to accept a limited level of the practice of evil uh, uh, to be recognized as legitimate. We don't have that at all. And I think that's, an, that's a key ingredient because that's what, give, that's what will give everybody permission to accept the evil in themselves and maintain it under adult supervision. Mm. And part of being educated and becoming adult uh, is learning how to supervise the evil within you, but keeping it in sight. Because when it goes out of sight, that's when you pick up a gun and go to a shopping mall and kill a dozen people. You, the righteous man who always did the right thing in life. Mm-hmm. Or that's when you would think you are, you know, the, the, the successor to Peter the Great and you are going to kill the Ukrainians for the greater good of the Slavic nation. Mm. This that's is basically this just integrating the shadow kind of, kind of thing. Yeah. Right yeah. on. Yeah, maybe we'll uh, maybe we will move towards the civilization that embraces that kind of practice. Like us specifically, like me and you. Our, I mean, our our global civilization. <laughs> it's hard to it's hard to speak of like one part of the world without speaking of the other at this point. If you look at the the Old Testament and what the devil was in the Old Testament, the devil was the prosecutor in the court of God. He was a member of God's entourage. Mm. He, he was not a sadist. Um, the devil was the guy who would uh, look for the truth. He is the guy who would say, is Job really righteous? Mm. No. Have we tested him in all the circumstances uh, to know whether Job is really righteous? So he would confront people with their own bullshit. If you think you're righteous and good, then the devil is the guy who would come to you and say, are you really? Have a look at this mirror. You <laughs> know what I mean? And of course, nobody likes that. Nobody likes to be confronted with the bullshit in themselves, with their own bullshit. People hate it. So by the time the New Testament comes, uh, God was the sumum bonum, and there was no devil in the court of God because the devil fell. Because, you know, he was the first and great angel of God, the the son of God, the brightest, Lucifer, the carrier of light. Uh, But he was so bright, he became arrogant, and he fell. He was no longer in the court of God. He fell. And in the Middle Ages, he became a, a sadist. Mm. <laughs> the devil was never a, safe, a sadist as a mythological figure. Mm. Um, and by doing that, we eliminated the archetype within ourselves that confronts us with our own bullshit. Oh, we eliminated so the nice. devil archetype. We eliminated the trickster archetype. The, you know, both do, this, do that. Because we don't like to be confronted with our own bullshit. We absolutely hate it. So we repressed and eliminated those two archetypal figures. And only recently, and I I have to give kudos to the producers of, uh, I usually don't watch American series, but my girlfriend was watching a series called Lucifer on Netflix, Mm. several seasons. And the devil comes to earth and he starts helping a police detective solve crimes. And he has some key characteristics. Um, If he asks you, what do you really want? You say, (laughs) he extracts from you your own bullshit. You know, you confess to him what you really want or what you are really, you think you're a righteous person, but what you really want is to go screw, I don't know how many women uh, outside your marriage. You know, that's what the the devil does. And his key weakness is that he cannot lie. He can't lie. So if you ask him a question, he will tell you the truth. He's constitutionally incapable to lie. 
And he's evil in the sense only that by confronting people with their own bullshit and revealing the truth, he becomes an undesired figure because people suffer when they confront their own bullshit. And therefore, the blame is the devil's, and the devil became a sadist for that reason. But this series is bringing, was bringing back some of the original devil figure. Um, if we can reinstate, and, 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 and I know there will be people there saying, oh, Bernardo is a... Bring back devil. the devil. <laughs> yes, uh, uh, no, no, he engages in devil worship or whatever. What would the devil do? <laughs> Uh, that's why we shouldn't even use the word devil anymore. We should use more ancient terms. Uh, Lucifer is a good one because it means the carrier of... Well, not even that because it has become synonym with the devil. I like trickster a lot. That's a, that's a good trickster. Maybe yeah. it's a better one. We have to reinstate the legitimacy of the psychological archetype within ourselves that when we look at the mirror, looks back at us and says, look at what's inside you. Mm. Look, at, look at what you really want. Look at what is, is really living within you, or the dispositions uh, that, that, that live within you. Look at what you are capable of. Yeah, most people call that paranoia, actually. It's really funny. Well, <clears throat> if we don't have a healthy relationship with that figure, it will either not be there at all, or it will become paranoia, paranoid schizophrenia. Yeah, I have a friend... That's the problem. Yeah, I have a friend who cannot consume THC because they go crazy like they have a full-blown identity crisis and i don't know how to start the conversation of like have you considered that there is an unresolved part of your shadow that you should deal with because to me it seems so like i'm the type of person that has ruminated obsessively my entire life i was bullied heavily as a child and my family was very it's a very contentious place and so i spent a lot of time confronting like the deeply terrible shit that I have done over the course of my life. And so to me, I'm like, it's par for the course. You ruminate, you acknowledge, you you accept full responsibility, you aim better, you recognize you'll fail, but just aim and line yourself up with that. But I continuously encounter people for whom it's like a revelation that that's how you should. And I'm always baffled by that. And like, I don't... I'm like, get paranoid. Like, yeah, if you think terrible things about yourself, like, dig into them because and fix them you know like actually like a, like maybe you are an asshole like maybe, maybe nobody does like you. right maybe you know <laughs> maybe you should stop doing the things that you're doing like but maybe you hate people, your job for good reason like maybe you right. have you have lost your idealism and the things that you believe in right, like right. there these things this this fear that bubbles up inside of you like i've spent so many i've spent so many years deeply acquainted with it like walking alone at night and I'm like, I think that it's useful. Like, I've probably over-ruminated over the course of my life, but I think that that is the only path through it. Because the other way is that you just, you, you, you like have a, an empty, an open grave in your life that you periodically fall into. And I'm like, you can't, you can't live like that. You, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta fill your graves. <laughs> you know, the things you just said. When you look inside you and you see that thing in you that you don't want to recognize, the things that, that we can say to ourselves, you, you listed several, like, uh, yes, you have that in you, but you can do better. You can be better. Um, there is one thing that we should say and we never say, and that links back to what I was talking about before, which is giving evil legitimacy under controlled supervision. Uh, and that thing that we should say, 
and, and, and now listen to me with your heart. Don't 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 go too far with what I'm about to say because it can be taken out of proportion. Mm. What we should say when we confront the darkness within us is not just I can do better or I can overcome this. It is the following. It is okay. It is okay to have that in me. I am part of nature. That's part of nature. That's part of me. It's all right. Not all right in the sense that I will give you give it free reign and go kill people. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it's all right that this lives within me. It's mm -hmm. all right that there's a part of me that is a jerk. It's mm -hmm. all right that there is a part of me who is evil. It's all right, that's a big one, that there is a part of me that is a self-torturer. That too is all right. But only a part. And yeah, and it's only all right because you. By there is the tortured. There is a torturer yeah, yeah. and the tortured. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, the torturer is always a part of you because there's the other part that is being tortured by well, yourself. I think that there is also the capacity to be the one who just tortures externally and doesn't torture yourself. Like you're saying, Putin oh. lies in bed at night and is like, I don't think he thinks of himself as evil at all. Like, I think that he, to, to commit such acts, you have to be wholly embodied as fully good but what that really is is that you have pushed aside the part of you that's able to, to call back onto yourself to be like hey are you sure about that like are you sure is that really is that really what you want to do I, maybe he doesn't torture himself the same way he tortures others but we are exquisitely creative in finding ways to torture ourselves <laughs> he will be torturing himself in some other way mm, it comes will out. fly right over your head and you will never have access <laughs> to because that's what we do and, and, and the maturity that I'm talking about is the maturity that you have when you look at all that unacceptable crap within you and you say, with full sincerity, it is okay too. I shall not give it free reign, but it's okay that this exists. And this is the only way to be free. I think that, that, that that's the texture of a personality. I have met people in my life that are just like sweet and sugary all the way through. And I yeah, but it feel like they're, out. they're it not cracks like form, you know? Maybe they do, I've, they I've do, known people they do. that are just so deeply. But maybe good. they're integrated. Maybe they've, you know. There's maybe. two cases, right? They either hold the shell up and it cracks sometimes or they integrate it, right? They are okay with being paranoid and being like, well, maybe I could have done that. You know, maybe that wasn't, maybe that thing does live within me. Maybe. But I guess what I'm just trying to say is that like, I think that the, 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 the play between the light and the dark is what makes for interesting ideas. It's what makes for interesting art. It's what makes for interesting conversation. It's what makes life worth engaging with if it's just all darkness or it's just all light it it, it lacks a, it lacks a depth right like you can't draw yeah. uh, you can't make a drawing that's all one value you have yeah, to have like the dialectic value. that is the engine of history according to hegel yeah, yeah there's something to be said about what you're saying yeah god if only we could get hegel on the podcast yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's an AI. You don't understand him anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. No, I think that that's there's true. an AI. People are building like AI systems where you can talk to like historical figures. So we're <laughs> going to put us out of business. <laughs> there we go. <clears throat> okay, I think we got to go because we got to get ready for our next conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much right. for it's taking the so time. Good. To You're speak welcome. With us. It's, it's been, been fun. Very Excellent. illuminating. Yeah. Um, and I so people it. can find you. Uh, where can people find you? 
bernardocastrop.com. Castrop with a K. Everything can be found from there. Beautiful. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. We'll look forward to seeing what comes next. Take care. Bye. Sure. Bye.